Welcome to the Literary Hangover. I'm your host, Matt Leck. With me once again is Alex Guns. Hello. And today we are doing The Blythedale Romance by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This is, I don't even know how, which Nathaniel Hawthorne, which number of Nathaniel Hawthorne stories this is for us. Um, oh, for episode? There's got to be like seven or eight. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it, it, look, we apologize. Don't take it as like we love Hawthorne. Um, although, well, so I texted you like a few weeks ago saying Blythedale sucks. Yep. Um, was not a fan of it. Um, I can't, I've come around on them. Is that a little bit? I, I'm neutral toward it. I'm glad that it was made is where I'll, um, but, but only just, I think <laughs> is where I'm at there. Yeah. Yeah. I think we had come off a pretty high note. I think it was, uh, seven, gables. seven gables, which is. With its problems, I think it's still a very good novel. And then Wakefield, which actually has really become maybe my favorite short story of his. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I was like, this guy, he gets it. He really got rid of some of his old habits. His opinions suck, but his opinions suck. he can actually put together a little little tale. <laughs> trying to think of a more condescending thing I could like. Yeah, I know. Like, you know what? The guy can put quill to put paper. It, can, it can, uh, what, do you, what do you do with a yarn? You, you something the yarn. He can spin some yarn. Spin some yarns, yeah. Yeah, moderate, or went back to just mild. I think it went from being like, this could be good, to cratering in my estimate of the story, and then struggled to finish it. And by the time I reached the finish line, I was like, you know what? It's fine. Yeah, so it was published in July of uh, 1852. So 1850 is Scarlet Letter, 1851 is The Seven Gables, and 1852 is Blydale Romance. It's a very quick turnaround. That is, he is pumping out some work. Uh, now, reminder of his biography a little bit. Kind of funny. So, uh, <laughs> well, funny, guy. funny to Borges. Borges thought it was funny, if you remember that. Yeah, he just kind of has like a home base kind of feel. Maybe because like one of those first writers that we started with. But every time we come back to him, it's like, you know what? Like, I just feel like I'm home for a little bit. Well, the reason, uh, actually, we can get to our D.H. Lawrence clip here, because the reason we are playing this Hawthorne uh, story is because it satirizes Brook Farm, which is a transcendentalist-associated sort of commune, and how closely it adhered to transcendentalist principles, whatever those are, uh, is is, is sort of debatable. And actually, let's just define transcendentalist because uh, my favorite listener, my mother, uh, reminded me that we did not define that when talking about Margaret Fuller. And uh, I think we could probably do that. Well, so just to run down Hawthorne's biography, he was at Bowdoin College uh, where he met Franklin Pierce, uh, 1821 to 1825. Then he moved back in with his uh, mother and family in 1825. So he's an inspiration to all of those, and I yeah. think I, 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 there's no shame in this at all with a the economy. pioneer. In yeah, many ways. he's he's an inspiration. Like you can you go back uh, because shelter is an important thing to have. Um, goes back with his mother and basically lives in the attic for twelve years. Yeah, uh, writing she never, short stories. Never sees her right. And yeah, she just gives just puts food by put his... food by the door. <laughs> mother, classic. Yeah. 1837, he publishes Twice Told Tales, which uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow promotes with a a nice little review. Uh, And that's sort of his first breakthrough. Then he goes to the Custom House in 1839. We talk about that in the uh, lead up to the Scarlet Letter episode uh, there for a couple of years. And then in 1841, uh, in April, he leaves for Brook Farm. He's also newly married, right? Well, actually, he addresses Sophia Peabody, his fiancee, as wife in letters to her. But they aren't 
I, oh, I need to look this up because I mm. don't think they're actually married at that point. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't marry uh, Sophia Peabody until uh, 1842, but he does call her my dear wife mm. and stuff in all these letters. And in the letters, uh, he uh, makes fun of Margaret Fuller a whole lot um, through her the cow that she just gifted her. Margaret Fuller is not actually a member of Brook Farm, although she lectures there and uh, says that the uh, some of the workers uh, react to her lectures like sans culottes by yawning and walking out in the middle of it because they're not that interested. But uh, Hawthorne, there's a number of letters in here where they go, he, he's talking about the cow that she gave the the farm and about how uh, it's, first it's fractious and tries to kick over the milk pail and then it sort of like becomes the leader and then the other cows get sick of it. And uh, for our definition of transcendentalism, we will turn to the Norton Critical Edition uh, of the Blydale Romance, which I am a, uh, we're both uh, huge fans of. I know, Alex. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, you got to have, like, for any, like, major text, if it's, like, your first time jumping in, I feel like Norton is always the best bet, especially if it's in, like, a more archaic form of, like, English, like yeah. if you're reading uh, Paradise Lost. Well, maybe mm. Moby Dick, something that has like a lot of allusions to it. I know. I'm, They've got you covered. I'm salivating at the idea that I'm just going to buy about 20 of these and write them all off of my taxes. Yeah. Um, it helps that they're always expensive. Yeah, exactly. They're always like $30 because they are often assigned in college courses, which is where I uh, went into my first one. It was assigned uh, Evelina by Fanny Burney. Never read Which it. she was an inspiration for Jane Eyre. Hmm. Um, an epistolary, or epistolary. We've been through this before, so yeah. Grace isn't here to correct me. Um, actually, I've referenced that novel before. Um, but uh, thankfully, uh, to get back to the uh, want of the definition of transcendentalists, we have the Norton Critical Edition, page 81 here. It says, uh, The phrase refers to the members of the Blydale community, strongly associated with Emerson, Margaret Fuller, and other Boston-area intellectuals. Transcendentalism was a loosely defined social and cultural movement emerging in the 1830s and characterized by a distrust of established religious authority, a sense that nature was infused with spiritual meaning and enthusiasm for various social reforms and a commitment to individual self-realization. Several members of the Brook Farm community, including the founder, George Ripley, were members of this group. Not all of the uh, transcendentalists were big-time reformers. I mean, they were all like generally against, say, like slavery, for instance, um, generally. Oh, mm-hmm. Hawthorne wasn't. He wasn't a transcendentalist, though. But for sort of individualist reasons is where like Emerson and Thoreau, for instance, uh, disdained it. Yeah, I think the power of the individual and like the society as a and the heritage as a concept that is is like what's keeping the power of the individual back is probably like the one unifying theme for like all people that are on like the spectrum of transcendentalist thought. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is from chapter one of a uh, Walden by uh, Thoreau it says. If I knew for certain that a man was coming to my house with the conscious design of doing me good, I should run for my life, for fear that I should get some of his good done to me, some of its virus mingled with my blood. Here's something Emerson wrote, uh, writing to uh, Thomas Carlyle in 1840. This is is in the run-up to um, the founding of Brook Farm. We are a little wild here with numberless projects of social reform. Not a reading man has but a draft of a new community. One man renounces the use of animal food, another of coin, 
in another of the state, and on the whole we have a commendable share of reason and hope. Oh yeah, here's another one from Thoreau. Uh, if anything, this is in O. Walden as well. Uh, if anything ail a man, if he have a pain in his bowels even, he forthwith sets about reforming the world. So, um, none of these are as conservative though as Hawthorne. Actually, this came out the same year as his Franklin Pierce biography. So he wrote this book and the Franklin Pierce like election biography. Yeah, that might explain why the, this one's kind of a a downgrade maybe i think we can get well i like my overall critique is that the writing is very strong i'd be curious to see how you feel about uh, that the subject matter is uh incredibly dull like it's not he's not even interested in it yes i think that's i agree with that although i think the interesting thing about like coverdale is he seems just like the nathaniel hawthorne that is writing a franklin Hears biography that says things like well here's i'm just going to get into a bit of hawthorne's opinions here um so in his uh this is from a, a good uh, a, uh article on the subject hawthorne and the universal reformers by gorman beauchamp man i printed this really small <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, in his 1852 campaign biography of Franklin Pierce, Hawthorne came to categorically, there is no instance in all of history of the human will and intellect having perfected any great moral reform by methods uh, uh, which it, it adapted to that end. Uh, ten years later, in chiefly about war matters, that'd be 62, chiefly about war matters, that curious provocative account of his trip to the battlefields of Virginia, he reiterated his view. No human effort on a grand scale has ever yet resulted according to the purpose of its projectors. We miss the good we sought and do the good we little cared for. And he also thought of the South that, the, that a Northern victory in the Civil War would be to their benefit, which this is actually, the, the Beauchamp compares this to uh, Marx's irony of history when he talks about in the 18th Rumere, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, the fact that historical actions frequently have unintended consequences, often in complete contradiction to the purpose of its actors. Right. Yeah, I think for someone like Hawthorne, you can access him today well because I think maybe the most annoying thing with like um, the transcendentalists are so goddamn earnest. Mm. And sometimes it's just like, you know, you're just doing work outside your house. It actually does not have any transcendent qualities. And I think that's like where Hawthorne comes in being like, this doesn't have any greater meaning beyond toil and toil sucks. Right. And there's something... He's like, I think he, he expands that and it goes a bit too far where he's like, there's no point in even like protesting against a war because war is just a natural part of society and you should just get over it. Yeah, he basically yeah. is like, don't have an opinion on uh, small and large events going on in your life. But it's, it, So he goes on to say, uh, he, he goes even farther back than the Civil War and says that uh, uh, um, Archbishop Lodz, a religious pr- persecution, had the paradoxical result of promoting the cause of liberty by driving the Puritans to the New World. Liberty would have no cradle, Hawthorne asserted, and the world would have been hindered in its march, perhaps for centuries, but for the timely aid of the Archbishop. He flip-flops, but he ends up flopping on the fact that a knowing God exists and they're in control and you're not in control. Yeah, because he says here, uh, he, and this is also, this This came out the same year as uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Which I'm sure he loved. Um, his agent was like, God, man, we should have <laughs> had something like that. You should have got some of those Stowe bucks. <laughs> yeah. He's like, meanwhile, just like reading the Blydell romance, he's just like, I damn, know, I don't man. know, man, this isn't going to work. This could have been it, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Instead, it's some like, uh, basically like, 
the Jersey Shore transcendentalist. Uh, anyway, it's, it's no, a very good. reality show. Um, anyway, that's, that's skipping ahead too much. Um, here's what he said uh, about slavery. Looked upon slavery as one of those evils which divine providence does not leave to be remedied by human contrivances, but which in its own good time, <laughs> in its own good time, um, by some means impossible to be anticipated, but of the simplest and easiest operation, when all its uses have, uh, shall have been fulfilled, it causes to vanish like a dream. So, I think that's what's interesting about him as like a thinker and a writer because he applies that same reasoning to like the Salem witch trial, for example. And it's like how foolish they are to like try to like they the the Puritan mission is to come in and to make the world new again, right? And his whole thing is like it's just going to lead to something like this. He does. He explicitly. Uh compares the reformers in Blythedale to the Puritans. Yeah, I think that's maybe the strongest part of this book, or the most like interesting thought. Yeah. That they're not reforming anything. That mm-hmm. they're just like the same the same impulse uh with a new like with a more modern clothing. Right. Um so let's get to uh <laughs> D. H. Lawrence on Blythedale and uh I'll I'll just uh, crib from the uh, Norton on the D.H. Lawrence bio as well. Um, the English writer David Herbert Lawrence, 1885 to 1930, best known as the author of such novels, Sons and Lawrence, uh, <clears throat> Sons and Lovers, uh, Women in Love, and The Scandalous Lady Chatterley's Lover, uh, published the brilliant and idiosyncratic Studies in Classic American Literature, a book that profoundly shaped the emerging field of American literature and continues to provoke and surprise its readers in 1923. Lawrence sought to rescue American writers from uh, the category of children's literature by revealing the emotional extremity and psychological darkness of their writings. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm going to read that. Um, this was coded as children's literature at the beginning of the 20th century. Is that the idea? Uh, I think, no, I think their reputations were just more as chil- for, like books for children. Like so, like uh, like he he talks about um, in the section before we're, the part we're going to play. He talks about sin in the Scarlet Letter. Oh, uh, right. makes a point about how it's only it, which I which to be honest is a part I could have listened to before we recorded on the Scarlet Letter because <laughs> where he says about the importance of that they actually feel it's wrong. Oh yeah, yeah, that's um, what makes it a sin. Yeah, uh, which is interesting. Um, but uh, he talks. Very interestingly about the Blythedale romance, and uh, I want to play a little bit of that now. Blythedale romance. This novel is a sort of picture of the notorious Brook Farm experiment. There, the famous idealists and transcendentalists of America met to till the soil and hew the timber in the sweat of their own brows, thinking high thoughts the while, and breathing an atmosphere of communal love and tingling in tune with the oversoul, like so many strings of a super-celestial harp, an old twang of the crev-cur instrument. Of course, they fell out like cats and dogs, couldn't stand one another and all the music they made was the music of their quarreling. You can't idealize hard work, which is why America invents so many machines and contrivances of all sort, so that they need do no physical work. And that's why the idealists left off brook farming and took to book farming. You can't idealize the essential brute blood activity, the brute blood desires, the basic sardonic blood knowledge. That you can't idealize, and you can't eliminate it. 
So there's the end of ideal man. Man is made up of a dual consciousness, of which the two halves are most of the time in opposition to one another, and will be so long as time lasts. You've got to learn to change from one consciousness to the other, turn and about, not to try to make either absolute or dominant. The Holy Ghost tells you the how and when. Never did Nathaniel feel himself more spectral. Of course, he went brook farming. Then when he was winding the horn in the morning to summon the transcendental laborers to their tasks, or than when marching off with a hoe, ideally, to hoe the turnips, never did I feel more spectral, says Nathaniel. Never did I feel such a fool, would have been more to the point. Farcical fools trying to idealize labor. You'll never succeed in idealizing hard work. Before you can dig Mother Earth, you've got to take off your ideal jacket. The harder a man works at brute labor, the thinner becomes his idealism, the darker his mind. And the harder a man works at mental labor, at idealism, at transcendental occupations, the thinner becomes his blood, and the more brittle his nerves. Oh, the brittle, nerved brook farmers! You've got to be able to do both, the mental work and the brute work. But be prepared to step from one pair of shoes into another. Don't try and make it all one pair of shoes. The attempt to idealize the blood. Nathaniel knew he was a fool, attempting it. He went home to his amiable spouse and his sanctum sanctorum of a study. Nathaniel! But the Blythedale romance, it has a beautiful wintry evening farm kitchen sort of opening. <laughs> Dramatis Personae 1. I, the narrator, whom we will call Nathaniel, a wisp of a sensitive, withal deep, literary young man no longer so very young. 2. Zenobia, a dark, proudly voluptuous, clever woman with a tropical flower in her hair, said to be sketched from Margaret Fuller, in whom Hawthorne saw some evil nature. Nathaniel was more aware of Zenobia's voluptuousness than of her mind. 3. Hollingsworth, a black-bearded blacksmith with a deep-voiced lust for saving criminals, wants to build a great home for these unfortunates. 4. Priscilla, a sort of white lily, a clinging little mediumistic sempstress who has been made use of in public seances, a sort of prostitute soul. 5. Zenobia's husband, an unpleasant, decayed person with magnetic powers and teeth full of gold, or set in gold. It is he who has given public spiritualist demonstrations, with Priscilla for the medium. He is of the dark, sensual, decayed, handsome sort, and comes in unexpectedly by the back door. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of Hawthorne's more admirable qualities that or it's kind of infectious, his point of view of, like, this material activity isn't anything more than what it is. And especially in contrast to his, like, uh, contemporaries like um, Emerson or, or uh, Thoreau. Like, I feel like for Hawthorne, he'd be like, to Thoreau, he'd be like, you're just some asshole in a cabin, and that's it. Like, and especially when you consider, the, like, Walden Pond, like, that was was just a rebuilt hut 
the Irish immigrants came in when they were building the the trains. Oh, it, right. Or the whatever that train line is that yeah, goes yeah. through there. Uh, Thoreau just was like, oh, I'll I can make like I'll just take the design and make it like my cabin. I feel like Hawthorne would be like, he's like, what are you doing? Like you're just you're trying to make something that is of no value unto itself and just like filling it with meaning to like ignore the fact that most of life is meaningless. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like I um I resist a little bit the uh, this the reductiveness of uh, of Lawrence. I think. The times that I have most enjoyed laboring, uh, it's been doing things like um, running cable through a building through the ceiling or landscaping or um, re, uh, re sort of re- removing spackle from the ceiling of a of a garage mm-hmm. while I have audiobooks or something playing. Yeah. Um, and I like that because it's both of these things. Like it is like the... Um, George Ripley wanted to marry laboring and thinking. Like that was the sort of Brook Farm ideal. Yeah. And like part of the, some of the people were said like um uh you 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 pay for room and board and the Greek is thrown in for free sort of thing. <laughs> but uh, uh Lawrence mentions the mesmeric uh theme behind Westervelt and Priscilla. And that's a big theme here too in in chapter one, we meet Coverdale as he had just returned from seeing the veiled lady, uh, this mysterious woman. No one knows what's under the veil, and it's like a sort of gimmick. Um, you know, it's actually it's nineteenth century entertainment. Yeah, or I was going to say it's nineteenth century UFO uh, sighting. That's true too. Yeah, <laughs> like she's so amazing that. Uh, but what is under there? What's under there? Yeah, what is and Franklin Pierce going to do about this? This is this is this is the first of of a few times where it seems like Hawthorne just repurposes an idea he had previously in a short story because there's also the minister's black veil. Oh yeah, the short story where a priest is just like I'm wearing a black veil and everyone's like, holy shit, that what? guy he means it's business. Twisted. Yeah, like he's like it's like. He's like goth, uh, goth minister. <laughs> there was definitely some ideas in this book in general that it's like not even ideas, like tropes, where it's like, okay, we've been here before. Like yeah. with the uh, staff, what is the uh, professor has a serpentine staff? Oh yeah, just like in Young Goodman Brown, being like, is that just like the most like evil thing you can uh, well, think of? Yes, uh, I was going to mention Young Goodman Brown is the other one where in the Masquerade chapter um, we don't want, we don't want to skip to too much, but I'll just flag that now. And then there's also some Wakefield repurposing. Yep. Um, I also like what Lauren said is they went from uh, brook farming to book farming. Yeah, that was cute. Um, that's funny. This is toward the end of his uh, tenure at Brook Farm. He's writing to his le- uh, wife, and she. Uh, I believe the story is she had was having like headaches or something like that. She's having have some health issues. Yeah, and so uh, headaches is like a pretty big euphemism for like any problem that like a woman is having in the 19th century. Like it could be so many things that a doctor's like, I'm not looking into this. Yeah, interesting. And actually, there's some books written on the Peabody sisters, and those might be interesting to get into for the uh, 200 level uh, literary hangover. <laughs> yeah, course. yeah. Um, but here's a selection of this uh, letter uh, that Hawthorne wrote to his wife. Well, his not wife, but he calls her his wife. They're not married yet. Um, My spirit is moved to talk with thee today about these magnetic miracles and to beseech thee to take no part in them. I am unwilling that a power should be exercised on thee, of which we know neither the origin nor consequence, 
and the phenomena of which seem rather calculated to bewilder us than to teach us any truths about the present or future state of being. If I possessed such a power over thee, I should not dare to exercise it, nor can I consent to its being exercised by another. Supposing that this power arises from the transfusion of one spirit into another, it seems to me that the sacredness of an individual is violated by it. There would be uh, an intrusion into thy holy of holies, and the intruder would not be thy husband. Canst thou think, without a shrinking of thy soul, of any human being coming into closer communion with thee than I may? Then either nature or my own sense of right would permit me? I cannot. I can't believe you fucking wrote like that. It's very insecure, man. Yeah, yeah. It's like... What were you doing looking at that guy? Yeah. You're basically... You got hypnotized by him? Yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. I can't believe you right now, Sophia. The marriage is off. You got... Yeah. I mean, if you read the Blydale romance with mesmerism in mind, it's like the idea that you... You can tap into something that and control somebody. It's very um, materialistic and anim- like um, mechanistic. Like human beings are almost like things you can tune in, like a radio. Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting how he sees himself too. Is he sees himself as this like this like composite of passions that he's found a way to keep perfectly level, like a like a manager of a factory or something. I don't even know, mm-hmm. or like. The manager at Chernobyl, <laughs> like keeping all of these different, like possible dangerous things at the pro- appropriate level they need to be. But he, mu- I feel like his criticism of transcendentalism and Brook Farm, and this is that it's pushing, it's pushing these parts of the human psyche too far, and it's leading to witchcraft or destructive behavior. Yes, and he ties both radical politics and witchcraft slash mesmerism together, not only in this story, but in uh, The House of the Seven Gables. Um, Here's from chapter 12, The Daguerreotypist on The House of the Seven Gables. As a supernumerary official of some kind or the other aboard a packet ship, this is talking about Holgrave, uh, the mysterious daguerreotypist, Uh, As a supernumerary official of some kind or other aboard a packet ship, he had visited Europe and found means before his return to see Italy and part of France and Germany. At a later period, he had spent some months in a community of Fourierists. Still more recently, he had been a public lecturer on mesmerism. So the very next line, he goes, hang on with Fourierists. The very next line, um, a public lecture on mesmerism, for which science, as he assured Phoebe, and indeed satisfactorily proved by putting Chanticleer, who happened to be scratching nearby to sleep, he had very remarkable endowments. So, radical politics, mesmerism, and science are like the three elements of Holgrave, and we, they're sort of like they've sort of conquered the world in uh, the House of Seven Gables. I yeah. guess. yeah, and to the point where it's like. It seems like everybody is accidentally doing mesmerism on everybody else in this story. Like, a little bit, yeah. Like it always talks about different sort of like brain patterns or like uh, uh, sympathies and things like that. Well, he's definitely using language that we would now call like like a story about a cult that I don't think is. Nece- I don't think that kind of language is necessarily there yet in the early or the mid part of the 19th century. Right. But the way he talks about it is how we would talk about like any of the hundred of documentaries that are on Netflix right now about people who like, you know, lose themselves to some higher being, but really they've just like checked out of reality. Lost themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so that mention of foyer still more recent, um, at a later period, he had spent some months in a community of foyerists. Brook farm was not 
officially a company of foyerists until 1844, uh, long after uh, Hawthorne got there. But I do want to go into foyer a little bit uh, as a utopian socialist, and this uh, actually pairs well with our Oscar Wilde episode, because he co- does come up so much in this uh, in Bladdale Romance, and in and. Uh, understanding his sort of where he's coming from is important to understanding what Hollandsworth is opposed to. Uh, but I just want to go back to the seven Gables uh, one more time. We've mentioned this a few times, but um, when they're in the uh, pension garden, uncle Venner and Hepzibah are talking about retirement basically. And uh, oh yeah. So Venner says, uh, uh, Mr. Clifford Pynchon, said the man of patches, you may scheme for me as much as you please, but I'm not going to give up this one scheme of my own, even if I never really bring it to pass. It does seem to me that men make a wonderful mistake in trying to heap up property upon property. If I had done so, I should feel as if Providence was not bound to take care of me, and, at all events, the city wouldn't be. I'm one of those people who think that infinity is big enough for us all, and eternity long enough. And then, uh, Later, uh, Holgrave replies, It appears to me, said the decarotype is smiling, that Uncle Venner has the principles of foyer at the bottom of his wisdom, only they have not quite so much distinctiveness in his mind as in that of the systematizing Frenchman. So who is the systematizing Frenchman? Keep hearing about him. All these veiled references, like the veiled lady. Um, if, you, if you go back and uh, listen to our Seven Gables episode, I played a clip that I think was a pretty good uh, uh, short summary of his work. Um, But it also sort of ended with saying that he basically spent the rest of his uh, his later days in France hoping that some rich person would come and give him enough money to make his perfect idea of like the Versailles-looking giant building for 1,620 people work. His phalanx. Yeah, and it was true that there was a problem of, well, we can't do it unless we can do it all like mm-hmm. you can't half bake this um although the what that misses out is in america plenty of people tried there was a lot of four-year uh four-year communities including brook farm there's also one in uh, brooklyn here mm-hmm. um but so let's uh i want to uh introduce you to this foyer i have a really g- great book that i'm going to be using for a good portion of this called paradise now the story of american utopianism by chris jennings I believe it came out in 2015 anyway it's recent it goes over um five different uh groups the ones that i've sort of read up through are the shakers uh the owenites and the foyerists and uh the and that's sort of the order they they kind of came in although owenites and the uh, foyerists were about uh, the same time anyway um here is a little bit of the life of of uh, Charles Foyer. He later claimed that this galling markup opened his eyes to the inherent perversion of competitive markets, setting in he was radicalized the by an overpriced apple set to paper. Fourier's apple was merely a catalyst. His distaste for capitalism had been developing since he was a boy. He was born in 1772, less than a year after Robert Owen, in the small city of Bisancon. Like Owen's, Fourier's life and ideas were, from the outset, swaddled in cloth the defining product of early industrialism. His father, Charles Fourier, Sr., was a successful textile merchant and woolen draper. He was determined to bring his only son into the family business, but the boy sensed a conflict between commerce and the reverence for truth that was drilled into him on Sundays. 
I was taught in catechism and at school that one must never lie, he wrote. Then I was taken to the shop to be trained at an early age in the occupation of lying, the art of selling. Fourier was a compulsive, <laughs> sensitive child. He obsessed over botany and cartography. His bedroom was so crammed with maps and flowerpots that it was difficult to move about. At seven, standing behind a counter in his father's shop, he informed a customer that he, the customer, was being shortchanged. This display of honesty earned Charles a forehanded thrashing by both parents. He was so traumatized that in imitation of Hannibal pledging lifelong enmity to Rome, he swore an eternal oath against commerce. In the summer of 1789, when Fourier was 17, a thousand angry Parisians fought their way into the Bastille prison a hulking stone symbol of royal tyranny. Fourier made every effort to remain aloof from the ensuing revolution, but he came to political consciousness in the shade of its darkest episodes. A year after the violence erupted in Paris, Fourier moved to Lyon, where, at his family's insistence, he apprenticed with a cloth wholesaler. Like Manchester, Lyon, then the capital of the global silk trade, was a textile town in upheaval. A modest form of globalization a treaty increasing imports from Great Britain flooded France with inexpensive cloth, decimating the ancient economy. Formerly independent weavers became wage laborers, beholden to erratic prices set by middlemen speculating on an international market. Even haute couture conspired against the silk workers of Lyon. In the tense years before and during the French Revolution, silk became a perilous mark of wealth. When the chic court of Marie Antoinette began sporting fine Manchester cottons, the style-obsessed aristocracy followed suit. As the revolution bled south from Paris, wartime austerity quashed the already hobbled silk industry. During the 1790s, half the silk workshops in Lyon closed. At the start of 1793, Fourier traveled from Lyon to his hometown to collect his inheritance of nearly 50,000 livres. Hoping to secure an early retirement from the unsavory world of commerce, he made a bold bet. He invested almost all the money in a single order of wholesale colonial goods cotton, sugar, and coffee which he planned to sell in Lyon. All on His timing could not have been worse. Lyon was France's second city, but unlike the radicalized capital to the north, it was a center of loyalty to the crown. The revolutionary authorities in Paris assigned a harsh Jacobin administrator to run the city, but in June 1793, Lyonnais counter-revolutionaries rebelled. They deposed the puppet administration, set up their own municipal government, and cut off relations with Paris. In August, the revolutionary army marched on Lyon, besieging the city for 60 days. As the standoff progressed, the starving Lyonnais ate their horses. At precisely the wrong moment, Fourier's wholesale order arrived. He watched as his bales of cotton were used for barricades and his coffee, rice, and sugar were requisitioned to feed the hungry local troops. Oops. <laughs> In a stroke, his inheritance was gone. For the rest of his life, despite his Hannibalic oath against commerce, Fourier supported himself by working as a bookkeeper, a clerk, and a traveling salesman. In the end, he wrote as an old man, I was broken to the yoke, and my best years were lost in the workshops of falsehood. So, yeah. Um, I mean, you can expect him to be, to hate commerce and be good at it. That seems fair that he's like, I yeah. hate the shit, and he made the exact wrong bet. Like, I, like, it must have been awful, you know, people eating horses and that stuff, but the, yeah. the idea of this little, this, like, teenage or, like, late teen or maybe early 20s guy... <laughs> 
Being like, oh crap, I got everything on that boat. Yeah, yeah. It's going into a starving port. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, just don't use all the sugar. Don't use it all. Just leave some of it. Oh man. Um, anyway, so he, he creates uh, the, a lot of these uh, ideas kind of based on vibration. It gets a little bit out there. Before we get into the out there stuff, I want to put two things that are a bit less out there. So um, this is uh, also from uh, Jennings. Uh, social problems that appear to stem from unbridled impulse, greed, murder, war, adultery, and so forth, are an actual fact caused by society's clumsy efforts to repress human passion. So it's he's kind of Foyer is somewhere between a socialist and a libertarian, I think. Right. Um, uh, vices or those things that we call vices serve vital social functions. Greed is good. Lust is good. Gossip is good. All of these impulses have a place and a function in God's creation. They turn sour only when we try to stamp them out or exercise them in solitude. In which case, they are no better than unchained tigers. Uh, Foyer offers the example of Russian princess named Lady Stroganov. While trying to suppress her lust for a young female servant, Stroganov picks the poor girl with hat pins thus tormenting the, um, tormenting the person who should have been the object of her pleasure. In other words, the struggle to smother impulse yields an endless harvard of misery. Now, uh, her, uh, the sexual passions were something that really, uh, that Foyer wrote a lot about, and that was one of the things uh, that when they tried to port this to America, um, they tried to leave behind to not scare yeah. anybody away. And they kind of failed to do that. But before I get to, um, too much more into that, he also had some good things to say about feminism. Um, humanity's ascent up this ladder of historical progress is, st- is strongly correlated uh, to the status of women within society. As women gain freedom, particularly sexual autonomy, societies advance. Uh, quote, uh, this is a quote of Fourier social progress and changes of historical period are accompanied by the progress of women towards freedom, he wrote. Extension of the rights of women is the basic principle of all social progress. So very woke foyer. Um, Now let's get to some of uh, what made him uh, difficult to swallow for uh, some people. And they actually, like, they said instead of foyerism, uh, Alfred Brisbane, the popularizer, uh, newspaper man called it associationism. But uh, here's a little bit more about Fourier's credibility. Fourier's theories raise a question about intellectual credibility. How Daffy must some of a thinker's ideas be for all of his or her work to be seen as suspect? Throughout the theory of the four movements and Fourier's subsequent writings, humane and refreshingly modern insights about the equality of women, the hazards of unchecked industry, and the virtues of sexual liberty are interspersed with pseudoscientific claptrap about the copulation of planets and the inevitability that humans will grow prehensile tails. Many of Fourier's most far-out ideas derive from his conviction that there is... Yeah, he thought planets could have sex um, because of the poles. So, yeah. ...of women, the hazards of unchecked industry... Who knows? ...and the virtues of sexual liberty are interspersed with pseudoscientific claptrap about the copulation of planets and the inevitability that humans will grow prehensile tails. Many of Fourier's most far-out ideas derive from his conviction that there is a correlation between the arrangement of human society and the health of the Earth and the cosmos. He regarded the universe as a coherent mechanism created by a beneficent and omnipotent God. Therefore, everything unpleasant that is found on Earth must be a glitch in the system. Disease, drought, poverty, extremes of weather, Mosquitoes, these things are anomalies, <laughs> symptoms of the general discord that currently reigns on Earth. Damn. In the era of harmony, when humanity begins treating the globe as it is meant to be treated, 
disease will disappear and the climate will improve. <laughs> For Fourier, unlike modern ecologists, treating the globe as it is meant to be treated does not mean leaving natural systems alone. It means leveling mountain ranges, irrigating deserts, planting new forests, and digging canals. Geoengineering, In harmony, baby. These sorts of vast earthworks will be a cinch because the application of attractive industry and passional attraction will have exponentially magnified human productivity. Passional attraction is, is how he thinks labor sort of gets uh, distributed. Uh, people will mm. want to do things that, they, that their passions uh, drive them to. And he also, he also has this concept of the butterfly passion, which is you'll do this job for two hours, this job for blah, blah, blah. And th- we kind of talked about that with uh, Griscom about Marx and the, you can be a fisherman at this time. You yeah, be yeah. A, you know, a podcaster at this other time. I think it was you know, probably Fourier's trust in the idea that if there's something that needs to be done, then surely in a harmonious universe, there's someone who was made for that right. work to be done. Yep. It means leveling mountain ranges, irrigating deserts, planting new forests, and digging canals. In harmony, these sorts of vast earthworks will be a cinch because the application of attractive industry and passional attraction will have exponentially magnified human productivity. Fourier predicts that the expansion of human industry will raise the temperature of the Earth's atmosphere, a notion that was surely met with laughter in the 1820s. Good call. He claims that this warming of the globe caused by industrialized agriculture and the reforestation of barren regions will be a good thing. Mm. In the era of harmony, <laughs> the entire world will have the warm, dry climate of Italy. Fourier claims that as the globe warms, a ring of light called the Northern Crown will form over the top of the planet. The Republicans are like, "Can we get this guy to testify in front of Congress?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're like, they'll they'll willingly admit that human activity causes uh, uh, global warming, but like, it's, it, you have to say it's good. Yeah, to prove that we can all become Italy. <laughs> the entire world will have the warm dry climate of Italy. Fourier claims that as the globe warms, a ring of light called the Northern Crown will form over the top of the planet, melting the polar ice, rendering the North Pole inhabitable, <laughs> and producing a more stable and temperate climate throughout the globe. Putin feels the same Not way. a thought is spared for rising sea levels, superstorms, or starving polar bears. As the ice melts, boreal liquid will leak into the sea. In combination with salt, Fourier famously predicted in a footnote, this liquid will give the sea a flavor of the kind of lemonade known as a grizzle. Yep. The sea will that. become lemonade. As in the biblical account of the millennium, the animal kingdom will take part in the regeneration of Earth. Lions will be replaced by docile anti-lions that will serve humans as high-speed, <laughs> smooth-gated taxi animals. Greyhound buses. And along with yeah. tasty, potable seawater, the mariners of Harmony will enjoy the assistance of amphibious servants to pull ships and help in fisheries. According to Fourier, these helpful creatures will replace the ghastly legions of sea monsters which will be annihilated by the admixture of boreal fluid and the consequent changes in the sea structure. Makes sense. Striding proudly through this new world will be a new man seven feet tall, amphibious, with replaceable teeth and a 144 vertebrae tail that terminates in a small hand as strong as the claws of an eagle or crab. Drafted the first Three's round. prophecies were not restrained by the limits of the Earth's atmosphere. All of creation obeys the laws of passional attraction. Everything, above and below, is part of the same harmonic totality. The galaxy exhibits the same reproductive, passional, and erotic tendencies that humans do. If planets were merely rocks gliding through darkness, Fourier wrote, then God would appear to be an advocate of laziness. (laughs) But God is not an advocate of laziness, he is an advocate of passion. 
Thus, heavenly bodies are as frisky as birds and bees. Yeah. Planets Good can logic. copulate, Fourier wrote, one ST with themselves by means of north and south poles, like plants, second with another planet by means of emissions from opposite poles, third with an intermediary, the two bros is engendered from three aromas, Earth south, Herschel north and Sun south. All this galactic hanky-panky has consequences here on Earth. We are stardust or, more specifically, star hormones. A planet is an androgynous body, provided with both sexes and functioning as a male through copulations at the North Pole, and as a female by those at the South Pole, <sighs> he wrote. Each substance of the various animal and vegetable kingdoms is the product of an aroma radiated by one of the heavenly bodies combined with that of another. Yep. <laughs> Cattle are born of an aroma sent out by Jupiter, horses of an aroma from Saturn, roses of an aroma from Mercury, <laughs> carnations of an aroma from Hebe, the operation is roughly similar to that of our gardeners. This, like any good theory, clears up a host of old questions. Comets, for instance, are actually aromal swarms destined to nourish the sun and the planets, yeah. and their approach is a joyful event for all astral bodies. Yep. Some of Fourier's admirers, notably Engels, suggested that these flights of imagination were mere satire or a smokescreen intended to help smuggle Fourier's revolutionary ideas past the censors. I like that. Yeah, there is scant evidence for this interpretation. Yeah. Fourier seems to have been genuinely convinced that he had figured out everything from the sexual life of the cosmos to the future extinction of giraffes, which it must be admitted are far too gangly for a perfect globe asterisk 12. Fourier did, yeah. however. What he has to say about the giraffe is this. Uh, truth is only beautiful in our society when it is inactive, and the giraffe, by analogy, is the only is only admirable when it is <clears throat> when it is at rest. When it walks or runs, it provokes jeers, as truth provokes jeers when it takes a practical form. Yeah, he's. It's a weird like. It's cool to get that pissed off about animals. Yeah, uh, he's how like, dumb that looks. The world's gonna be perfect once we have anti lions. Yeah. <laughs> Like something no one's even fucking thought about. Just being like, it'd be nice if these lines were a little more helpful, like in um, uh, Flintstones. Like they did work <laughs> for us and went there to living or whatever. Yeah. As opposed to being the scariest thing in the world. Yeah. I also like the idea that he was saying that like, well, once all the deadly sea creatures die out, like that will that will be a lesson to like lions, basically <laughs> to like shape up. knock this shit off and yeah. start serving us drinks. Shape up guys into anti-lions giraffes, which it must be admitted are far too gangly for a perfect globe. Fourier did, however, employ another type of literary subterfuge. To shake off the scoffers who would reject his theory without close study, he wrote in an intentionally obscure style. Oh yeah, he was afraid of... Deeply uh, paranoid of plagiarism. Yeah. He reasoned that if nobody... He's a weirdo. Too obsessed with plagiarism. You know, I don't like that. Um, yeah, now he's... Now we're out. We were willing to go with him with the seven-foot-tall amphibious human... Yeah, and uh, I'm looking for it. Maybe we don't need to talk about it, but it's kind of funny. Uh, his sexual stuff. Uh, actually, I, we should do it because it was what kind of freaked out a lot of the Americans when it started getting translated. You think they're just a bunch of rocks in space floating around? You really think that? Yeah, why would God do that? It's boring. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here's a bit on sex. <clears throat> 
According to the logic of passional attraction, the frequent violation of a certain taboo certifies the illegitimacy of that taboo rather than any flaw in human nature. Uh Mm. Uh-oh. So, for instance, the prevalence of marital infidelity evidences the absurdity of marriage as an institution, not the wickedness of the general population. A lot of people would agree with that now. Um, Fourier claimed that sexuality, like every other expression of human passion, is stifled and perverted in civilization. So-called civilizees cannot begin to comprehend, let alone satisfying, their own sexual desires or needs. Uh, this is kind of before its time in certain ways true. Um, in the phalanxes of harmony, oh, he also sort of like predicted algorithmic dating, uh, which we don't have time to get into. I didn't have time to research, but uh, there's, there's a funny article on Libcom, it looks like. He's just saying you should like flick through people on some sort of telescreen. Exactly. You get to where you he's, like, he's like, once we get the iPhone, you'll love it. <laughs> Um, harmony, the fully polymorphous splendor of human eroticism will flower. Desires that are currently hidden will be celebrated and refined. Homosexuals will freely obey their de- desires. Okay. Wow. Thanks for the pride. Uh, yeah. Pride month. Good work. Um, only those attracted to both sexes will attain the highest erotic orders though. Oh, so wow. Yeah, bi people get shafted a lot in uh, mm-hmm. LGBT discourse. Yeah. They get erased, but Fourier is saying you're actually the kings and queens. Um, masochists, <laughs> okay, whom Foyer called baby doll types because of the pleasure taken in spanking, baby doll types. I, I mean, did not like that. It is. I mean, all. it was before this already, like he, this section. But I was getting an image of while he's like writing at his desk, like furiously masturbating yeah. while this is going on. Yeah, but apparently he was never seen to smile. Yeah, that's shocking. Yeah. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, even incest, as long as it is between consenting adults, will yeah. be socially acceptable. Like Freud, Fourier frankly analyzed his own proclivities, finding himself to be one of the 26,400 earthlings with any... I don't know how we worked out the math of that. Yeah. Earthlings, a normal guy here. Uh, 26,400 earthlings with a, quote, mania for, quote, Safianism. Now, do you know what Safianism is? Is it supposed to be like Sappho? Uh, it is, that is, the like, love of lesbians and the eagerness to aid them in every way. Right. So he, like, he would like watching lesbians. Yep. I mean, considering the buildup when he was like, actually, it's totally okay to do incest. It's not too bad. It, no, exactly. <laughs> At least it's not like pedophilia or something yeah, like yeah. that. And it's like, okay. I mean, it was about to become the libertarian presidential Yeah, debate. exactly. <laughs> He is he is he is getting a bit libertarian presidential candidate there. Be a funny image like Fourier at that debate and even him being like, Jesus guys, like get it together. Yeah, like he, when mean, they're talking about hemophilia or what yeah, is it? Pretty what? sure God wants seatbelts, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Are you guys out of your fucking minds? <laughs> um so yeah, that's Fourier. Um and uh, we'll we'll touch a little bit more in the uh, uh on the Brook Farm part specifically. Uh, we'll return to uh, Paradise Now by Chris Jennings later, but let's maybe move on to the story. Now. Just likes hanging out with lesbians. Yeah, and a- eager to aid them in every way. My ladies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Baby dolls. Um, <laughs> right, well, leveling mountains. I forgot. That's one other thing I wanted to circle back at. That mm-hmm. is wild <laughs> to be like, once we destroy this mountain range, we'll have less mosquitoes. It's not that we don't do that now, but now it's like, now it's for coal. Right. Yeah, he would have loved strip mining. <laughs> Basically, the preface, uh, wild or not wild, 
The preface, Hawthorne says, uh, is don't take it too personally, even though it said it, uh, Blythedale, it looks like Brook Farm. I'm not talking about socialism. Don't take any of my, you know, comments to be about that. And yeah. I actually think that I believe him after reading uh, the book. I don't think he is really talking about, he's not, well, I know for a fact he's not really engaging with the Brook Farm experience. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I do think he is preoccupied on the concept of transcendentalism, though. Uh, yeah, that and and actually, I, w- I will say, even though he's not explicitly engaging with socialism, I think this is an anti-communist uh, book. Yes, um, I think it's like how he tackles all subjects, which is he does like a form of like intellectual excavate or excavating, like trying to get to like what he feels is like the root urge and, and movements in these things that these more concrete things that he disdains. Right. And so it gets so abstracted. It, 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 you can make the case. It's not literally about Brook farm or, or socialism, but yet it's like, it's about the ideas that are behind those movements, I think. Right. So chapter one, uh, called old Moody, uh, Coverdale is returning from seeing the veiled lady and he meets this guy, Moody, who asks him about, uh, Zenobia and if, if he's going to Blythedale, um, and at, wants him to do a favor, but then thinks better of it. Um, then chapter two, Coverdale sets out in a blizzard, which is uh, true to Hawthorne's real life experience about going to Brook Farm. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it was, a, it was blizzarding as he uh, was going there. There's a roaring fire. Um, fireplaces are big in this story as well. Yeah, it gets there. There's a fire, and he, and he goes on and on about the fire, uh, meets Zenobia. Chapter 3, Zenobia greets everyone, flatters, Coverdale says, I've even memorized some of your poems. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's called The Knot of Dreamers, by the way. And here is where we have our first clip, which is where Zenobia uh, announcing herself as a host, and we t- get a little bit into what's not going to be revolutionary about Brook Farm. I am the first comer, Zenobia went on to say, while her smile beamed warmth upon us all. So I take the part of hostess for today and welcome you as if to my own fireside. You shall be my guests, too, at supper. Tomorrow, if you please, we will be brethren and sisters, and begin our new life from daybreak. Have we our various parts assigned? asked someone. Oh, we of the softer sex, responded Zenobia, with her mellow, almost broad laugh, most delectable to hear, but not in the least like an ordinary woman's laugh. We women, there are four of us here already, We'll take the domestic and indoor part of the business as a matter of course. To bake, to boil, to roast, to fry, to stew, to wash and iron and scrub and sweep, and, at our idler intervals, to repose ourselves on knitting and sewing. These, I suppose, must be feminine occupations for the present. By and by, perhaps, when our individual adaptations begin to develop themselves, it may be that some of us who wear the petticoat will go afield and leave the weakened to take our places in the kitchen. What a pity, I remarked, that the kitchen and the housework generally cannot be left out of our system altogether. It is odd enough that the kind of labor which falls to the lot of women is just that which chiefly distinguishes artificial life, the life of degenerated mortals, from the life of paradise. Eve had no dinner pot and no clothes to mend and no washing day. I am afraid, said Zenobia, with mirth gleaming out of her eyes, we shall find some difficulty in adopting the paradisiacal system for at least a month to come. Look at that snowdrift sweeping past the window. Are there any figs ripe, do you think? 
Have the pineapples been gathered today? Would you like a breadfruit or a coconut? Shall I run out and pluck you some roses? No, no, Mr. Coverdale. The only flower hereabouts is the one in my hair, which I got out of a greenhouse this morning. That's a major motif for her, is her is the uh, flower in her hair. Um, but it's interesting because Zenobia is this famous feminist sort of public figure. And she, uh, we later find out, she's and, and it's sort of hinted already, that she comes fr- from money or she at least, she was at least born or raised, uh, I guess we should say, in uh, with some affluence and then made even more by uh, developing a public reputation. So she comes and says, yeah, we're just going to do the women's work. Uh, she mm-hmm. probably has servants or something outside, you'd think, but um, it, it, it's it's kind of a weird note off the bat, especially if she's meant to be representing Margaret Fuller, for her to just reaffirm uh, women's domestic labor, like right off the bat. Yeah, I, I felt like, as far as like the internal narrative goes, that it shows like how closely uh, Zenobia actually adheres to feminist liberating principles and how much she's using that as a vehicle for her own like uh access and gaining of power when i feel like that's like a a tell or a hint that she's not necessarily interested in like the day-to-day liberation of women right yeah that's a good point um um, and i think if it's if it's hawthorne wanting to reframe margaret fuller he's going to reframe her as a phony basically yeah yeah this isn't uh, despite Fuller recently dying, like in the last like five, uh, three, four years of this, uh, not a very sentimental uh, portrait of. Fuller. Well, did you read Susan Cheever's Bloomsbury Group? Yeah, that it was weird because when we read the Fuller biographies, there was not a lot of insinuation that there was a possible relationship between the two. But then Susan Cheever was like, absolutely there was. Yeah, and I think um, my gloss on that is that they did get have a close sort of relationship, um, occasionally like going for walks and stuff. Yeah. But, it, and, and it might have been something bigger in uh, Fuller's mind. And also Emerson, and I might be getting the story wrong, but I believe Emerson chanced upon those two together yeah, and got huffy about his it. Yeah, mind. Yeah, a- a- Emerson, there's a bit of Ho- uh, Emerson and Hollingsworth, I think. Yeah, I was thinking that too. Um, especially with the love triangle aspects of all this stuff. Yeah. Um, but um, There's a nice line actually on uh, in the introduction of Zenobia in, mm-hmm. in this third chapter. The narrator says, I was taking note of Zenobia's aspect. And it impressed itself upon me so distinctly that I can now summon her up like a ghost, a little waner than the life, but otherwise identical with it. That's such a nice touch if, you know, if it's supposed to be some hint of Margaret Fuller, who's now has been dead for like two or three years. Right. To that she left such an imprint that he can conjure her up like in his writing. Yeah. So I guess there's two ways to read what Zenobia does there. Um, I mean, the first thing that's established is that the gender breakdown of labor is in question at least by the people that are there, right? They mm-hmm. think it could be in flux. That's why that question's asked. So is Zenobia either, is she, the, there's a sense that she could be retreating from something in her sort of previous public life and trying to return to some other principles or is, or like you said, I like that interpretation as well, that this is actually uh, her pre-existing principles and that she doesn't really care that much about women's day-to-day life. She just wants to be able to, you know, be a, uh, um, you know, a, 
head of state or something like that. Which that that germ of that complaint is like the standard complaint against any liberatory movement, like be it like women's liberation or, or like minorities in America. Like the common conservative criticism is like, you're not really oppressed. You're just using this to dominate over poor men. And uh, uh, one thing that's interesting about the utopian movements is actually, I don't know if that criticism... There's certain criticisms like they're still taking place within a global market, that sort yeah. of stuff. Um, but pretty much all these utopian communities structured that tried to restructure the day. That was their fundamental unit to restructure. Yeah. And how are you waking up? And actually, we have in here we have the the horn, the morning sort of alarm. Um, yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, here's another section from this. Uh, where Coverdale starts talking about what it means to be sort of among these reformers. But our courage did not quail. We would not allow ourselves to be depressed by the snowdrift trailing past the window, any more than if it had been the sigh of a summer wind among rustling boughs. There have been few brighter seasons for us than that. If ever men might lawfully dream awake and give utterance to their wildest visions without dread of laughter or scorn on the part of the audience, yes, and speak of earthly happiness for themselves and mankind as an object to be hopefully striven for and probably attained, we who made that little semicircle round the blazing fire were those very men. We had left the rusty iron framework of society behind us. We had broken through many hindrances that are powerful enough to keep most people on the weary treadmill of the established system, even while they feel its irksomeness almost as intolerable as we did. We had stepped down from the pulpit. We had flung aside the pen. We had shut up the ledger. We had thrown off that sweet, bewitching, enervating indolence, which is better, after all, than most of the enjoyments within mortal grasp. It was our purpose, a generous one, certainly, and absurd, no doubt, in full proportion with its generosity, to give up whatever we had heretofore attained, for the sake of showing mankind the example of a life governed by other than the false and cruel principles on which human society has all along been based. And, first of all, we had divorced ourselves from pride and were striving to supply its place with familiar love. We meant to lessen the laboring man's great burden of toil by performing our due share of it at the cost of our own thews and sinews. We sought our profit by mutual aid, instead of wresting it by the strong hand from an enemy, or filching it craftily from those less shrewd than ourselves, if indeed there were any such in New England, or winning it by selfish competition with a neighbor, in one or another of which fashions every son of woman both perpetrates and suffers his share of the common evil, whether he chooses it or no, and, as the basis of our institution, we purpose to offer up the earnest toil of our bodies, as a prayer no less than an effort for the advancement of our race. Therefore, if we built splendid castles, phalansteries perhaps they might be more fitly called, and pictured beautiful scenes among the fervid coals of the hearth around which we were clustering, and if all went to rack with the crumbling embers and have never seen arisen out of the ashes, let us take to ourselves no shame. In my own behalf, I rejoice that I could once think better of the world's improvability than it deserved. It is a mistake into which men seldom fall twice in a lifetime, or, if so, the rarer and higher is the nature that can thus magnanimously persist in error. There's a germ to that idea that uh, 
if you're not a liberal when you're younger, you don't have a heart. If you're not a conservative when you're older, you don't have a brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, here's where we meet Silas Foster, the laboring man who cuts through a lot of the bullshit. Uh, yeah. Stout Silas Foster mingled little in our conversation, but when he did speak, it was very much to some practical purpose. For instance, which man among you, quoth he, is the best judge of swine? Some of us must go to the next Brighton Fair and buy half a dozen pigs. Pigs? Good heavens. Had we come out from among the swinish multitude for this? And again, in reference to some discussion about raising early vegetables for the market. We shall never make any hand at market gardening, said Silas Foster, unless the women folks will undertake to do all the weeding. We haven't team enough for that and the regular farm work. Reckoning three of your city folks as worth one common field hand. Now, now, I tell you, we should have to get up a little too early in the morning to compete with the market gardeners round Boston. It struck me as rather odd that one of the first questions raised, after our separation from the greedy, struggling, self-seeking world, should relate to the possibility of getting the advantage over the outside barbarians in their own field of labor. But, to own the truth, I very soon became sensible that, as regarded society at large, we stood in a position of new hostility rather than new brotherhood. Nor could this fail to be the case. In some so yeah, it's, it's perceptive. That mm -hmm. is going to be a problem. You're still operating, uh, like you need to interface with the outside world in very important economic ways. Yeah. Um, and uh, Hawthorne is perceptive to see that that is kind of going to be a problem immediately. Yeah, it's interesting that the, I think the standard criticism for Brook Farm and experiments of this nature is the fact that it just can't la it won't be able to last very long, mm -hmm. like apart from society. But which is fine, but it's kind of a basic criticism. But I like Hawthorne's like like you can't separate yourself from society because as long as there's more than one person, society's right there waiting for you. That's I think that is really the nut of this book too. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, uh, then basically, has Coverdale got as cold yet? I'm not sure. Uh, so, chapter four, the supper table. Uh, Coverdale's still going on about the fire. Um, it's a slow moving book, we should know. Yeah, as, yeah. Even compared to his, his previous work. Like, this luxuriates in the, like, very dull detail of life it's like oh it's like all about an entrance of a new person or this person this mysterious person asks about this person and yeah stuff like that. we remember that like you know one of his first short stories was like literally a magic trip through the forest where there was like you know witches and sorcerers and stuff like that and now mm -hmm. this one it's like uh these people are going to have a different opinion and be kind of nice about it for the most part right so uh, chapter four, the supper table, uh, covered tale, still on about fire. Hollingsworth enters with Priscilla. There's a bit of a section on like sort of liberal condescension says like, we're able to like sort of condescend to be with the laborers basically mm -hmm. because at any moment we can GTFO and go back to yeah, our yeah. real lives. Um, it, uh, Coverdale's purpose for being there is because he wants to write poetry or become a poet. Uh, it's interesting that Hawthorne also um, moved to Brook Farm because he was looking for a sustainable place to raise a family. And that's utopian communities turn out to not be the best place to look for something like that. Yeah, it always comes back being like an odd choice. And I think you had to to join it. But he did like stake a good amount of money bucks. Yeah, to be there. Doing 
two shares and didn't get them back. Yeah, because um, he left early or something, right? He's like, I can't deal with this. Yeah, he's he, he got sick of it. Um, yeah, he's like, I'm just like feeding cows. Like, is yeah. this really my best use of my time? Hollingsworth enters with Priscilla. Everyone, uh, people don't know who Priscilla is or why she's there. And uh, basically, she's like, let's just take care of Aurora Utopian community. Don't ask too many questions about it. Then uh, chapter five uh, until bedtime. Uh, <laughs> same day. <laughs> same day. Uh, Silas is going on about how good he is at shoemaking. Mrs. Foster knits. Uh, and then we start gossiping because people are kind of wondering who, what's Pr- who Priscilla is. And uh, Miles and Zenobia talk about that. It was curious to observe how trustingly and yet how timidly our poor Priscilla betook herself into the shadow of Zenobia's protection. She sat beside her on a stool, looking up every now and then with an expression of humble delight at her new friend's beauty. A brilliant woman is often an object of the devoted admiration, it might almost be termed worship or idolatry, of some young girl, who perhaps beholds the cynosure only at an awful distance, and has as little hope of personal intercourse as of climbing among the stars of heaven. We men are too gross to comprehend Mm. Even a woman of mature age despises or laughs at such a passion. There occurred to me no mode of accounting for Priscilla's behavior, except by supposing that she had read some of Zenobia's stories, as such literature goes everywhere, or her tracts in defense of the sex, and had come hither with the one purpose of being her slave. This is is an instance of Coverdale reading someone's motivations uh, and not having the full story. Yeah. There's nothing parallel to this, I believe. Nothing so foolishly disinterested, and hardly anything so beautiful, in the masculine nature, at whatever epoch of life, or, if there be, a fine and rare development of character might reasonably be looked for from the youth who should prove himself capable of such self-forgetting affection. Zenobia happening to change her seat, I took the opportunity, in an undertone, to suggest some such notion as the above. Since you see the young woman in so poetical a light, replied she in the same tone, you had better turn the affair into a ballad. It is a grand subject, and worthy of supernatural machinery. Or not. The storm, the startling knock at the door, the entrance of the sable knight Hollingsworth, and this shadowy snow-maiden, who, precisely at the stroke of midnight, shall melt away at my feet in a pool of ice-cold water and give me my death with a pair of wet slippers. And when the verses are written and polished quite to your mind, I will favor you with my idea as to what the girl really is. Pray, let me have it now, said I. It shall be woven into the ballad. She is neither more nor less, answered Zenobia, than a seamstress from the city, and she probably has no more transcendental purpose than to do my miscellaneous sewing, for I suppose she will hardly expect to make my dresses. How can you decide upon her so easily? I inquired. Oh, we women judge one another by tokens that escape the obtuseness of masculine perceptions, said Zenobia. There is no proof which you would be likely to appreciate except the needle marks on the tip of her forefinger. Then my supposition perfectly accounts for her paleness, her nervousness, and her wretched fragility. Poor thing, she has been stifled with the heat of a salamander stove in a small close room and has drunk coffee and fed upon doughnuts, raisins, candy, and all such trash till she is scarcely half alive. And so... As she has hardly any physique, 
a poet like Mr. Miles Coverdale may be allowed to think her spiritual. And that is an interesting uh, read Zenobia has of Coverdale. Oh, uh, it also reminds me of Engels' The Condition of the Working Class in England. Uh, have you ever read that? No. It goes. It's pretty amazing read because uh, he did a lot of work in like uh, this is how terrible the conditions are. The mm-hmm. descriptions of the um, the needle marks on the fingers. Oh. It's uh, interesting to me that Zenobia would pick up on that too. Actually, yeah, Zenobia. It's interesting Zenobia like this as this. Um, highly charismatic leader is not naive which is smart that she can inhabit the same mental space as our main character Mm -hmm. and is ready for it and deflects it rather quickly in in a certain way and i don't know that i would ever read things like this but you know how sometimes uh contemporary authors write novels from a point of view of a different character Oh, yeah, yeah. Zenobia's would be the most interesting almost. Like, she seems like the most main character. I don't know. I guess maybe not. No, I think so. I think there's a certain magnetism to her that gets coded into her character. I mean, you know, like, even, like, like the Oriental, like, there's, like, an Orientalism to her. Like, she's distant, and it's, like, helping define myself as a character. Right. That she can't ever be pinned down in some way, which makes her kind of enigmatic. As she has hardly any physique... A poet like Mr. Miles Coverdale may be allowed to think her spiritual. Look at her now, whispered I. Priscilla was gazing towards us with an inexpressible sorrow in her wan face and great tears running down her cheeks. It's the mesmerism here. It was difficult here. to resist the impression that, cautiously as we had lowered our voices, she must have overheard and been wounded by Zenobia's scornful estimate of her character and purposes. What ears the girl must have, whispered Zenobia, with a look of vexation, partly comic and partly real. I will confess to you that I cannot quite make her out. However, I am positively not an ill-natured person, unless when very grievously provoked, and as you, and especially Mr. Hollingsworth, take so much interest in this odd creature, and as she knocks with a very slight tap against my own heart likewise, why, I mean to let her in. From this moment, I will be reasonably kind to her. There is no pleasure in tormenting a person of one's own sex, even if she do favor one with a little more love than one can conveniently dispose of. And that, let me say, Mr. Coverdale, is the most troublesome offense you can offer to a woman. Thank you, said I, smiling. I don't mean to be guilty of it. She went towards Priscilla, took her hand, and passed her her own rosy fingertips, with a pretty, caressing movement over the girl's hair. The touch had a magical effect. Mm. So vivid a look of joy flushed up beneath those fingers that it seemed as if the sad and wan Priscilla had been snatched away and another kind of creature substituted in her place. So, yeah, there's Zenobia doing some mesmerism on uh, Priscilla there. Um, uh, So this chapter goes on. uh, They argue over what they should rename the community, um, somebody says, I think Zenobia suggested Sunny Glimpse, uh, mm-hmm. which they said uh, would be someplace you wouldn't want to be if you were getting sunburned working outside all the time. Um, I thought this part was funny. Uh, uh, we should have resumed the old Indian name of the premises had it possessed the oil and honey flow which the Aborigines were so often happy in communicating to their local Appalachians. 
by a chance to be a harsh, ill-connected, and inter- interminable word, which seemed to fill the mouth with a mixture of very stiff clay and very crumbly pebbles. Um, All right. Yeah, so. Um, uh, chapter 6 uh, basically Coverdale's got sick from his first, uh, when he first went out there in the snow. Um, and he's in his sick chambers. And here is where we meet uh, Hollinsworth a little bit. Hollingsworth prays, actually. The morning horn goes off, and then Holl- uh, Coverdale overhears Hollingsworth praying, and it affects him quite a bit. As for me, I lay abed, and if I said my prayers, it was backward, cursing my day as bitterly as patient Job himself. The truth was, the hothouse warmth of a town residence and the luxurious life in which I indulged myself had taken much of the pith out of my physical system, and the wintry blast of the preceding day together with the general chill of our airy old farmhouse, had got fairly into my heart and the marrow of my bones. In this predicament, I seriously wished, selfish as it may appear, that the reformation of society had been postponed about half a century, or, at all events, to such a date as should put my intermeddling with it entirely out of the question. What, in the name of common sense, had I to do with any better society than I had always lived in. It had satisfied me well enough. My pleasant bachelor parlor, sunny and shadowy, curtained and carpeted, with the bedchamber adjoining, my center table, strewn with books and periodicals, my writing desk with a half-finished poem, in a stanza of my own contrivance, my morning lounge at the reading room or picture gallery, my noontide walk along the cheery pavement, with the suggestive succession of human faces, and the brisk throb of human life in which I shared, my dinner at the Albion, where I had a hundred dishes at command, and could banquet as delicately as the wizard Michael Scott when the devil fed him from the King of France's kitchen, my evening at the billiard club, the concert, the theatre, or at somebody's party, if I pleased. What could be better than all this? Was it better to hoe, to mow, to toil and moil amidst the accumulations of a barnyard? To be the chambermaid of two yoke of oxen. This is very similar to his letters. To eat mm-hmm. salt beef and earn it with the sweat of my brow, and thereby take the tough morsel out of some wretch's mouth, into whose vocation I had thrust myself. Above all, was it better to have a fever and die blaspheming, as I was like to do? <laughs> in this wretched plight, with a furnace in my heart and another in my head, by the heat of which I was kept constantly at the boiling point, yet shivering at the bare idea of extruding so much as a finger into the icy atmosphere of the room, I kept my bed until breakfast time, when Hollingsworth knocked at the door and entered. "'Well, Coverdale,' cried he, "'you bid fair to make an admirable farmer. Don't you mean to get up today?' "'Neither today nor tomorrow,' said I, hopelessly. "'I doubt if I ever rise again.' "'What is the matter now?' he asked. I told him my piteous case, and besought him to send me back to town in a close carriage. <laughs> no, no, said Hollingsworth, with kindly seriousness. If you really are sick, we must take care of you. Accordingly, he built a fire in my chamber, and, having little else to do while the snow lay on the ground, established himself as my nurse. A doctor was sent for, who, being homeopathic, gave me as much medicine in the course of a fortnight's attendance as would have laid on the point of a needle. Homeopathy slam there. Um, so yeah, uh, 
very uh, apparently understanding Hollingsworth comes in and makes a fire and sort of takes care of him. Yeah. Kind of has like a Thoreau quality to him, Hollingsworth. He's a mix of Thoreau and Emerson, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because Emerson's too delicate, but Thoreau has that kind of like rugged, like, well, better make you a fire. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Emerson just, uh, he's just a lady killer. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, emotionally speaking, but you're in love with me. That's <laughs> yeah. crazy. We've just been yeah, spending just a lot of time about ideas. Together. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the Ruben report, but it's it's just his house. No, and- for real. I think about that all the time. Like you do this is they were doing what Dave Ruben pretends to do. Like, well, yeah, well, like where Fourier would be on Ruben report and be like, "That's where we're gonna get tails." And he goes, "Wow, that's wild." Yeah, that's exactly. crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think Carlisle would be a ma- more regular feature. Oh, on yeah. Ruben report. Um, the next day, uh, <laughs> Coverdale's still sick, uh, uh, recovering. Um, he talks about uh, some of the reading he was doing. Anomaly of likeness coexisting with perfect dissimilitude. Will you give me the letter, Priscilla? Said I. She started. Oh yeah, this is a. Uh, it, it, we're coming in at the end of this weird part where Priscilla has a letter from Margaret Fuller, and Coverdale's like, "Are you Margaret Fuller, basically?" And she's like, "What are you talking about?" You mean Zenobia? Yeah. Uh, no, it's Priscilla with the letter. Uh, that's why it's weird. It's uh, Priscilla. But her letter is from Zenobia, right? No, it's from Priscilla. The point no, easiest from, to convey to the. Re- it's from literally Margaret Fuller. Held oh. it against her bosom with both here it is it is for use not beauty answered priscilla i could have embroidered it and made it much prettier she made a I nightcap pleased. for him nice while holding up the nightcap and admiring the fine needlework i perceived that priscilla had a sealed letter which she was waiting for me to take mm. it had arrived from the village post office that morning as i did not immediately offer to receive the letter she drew it back and held it against her bosom with both hands clasped over it, in a way that had probably grown habitual to her. Now, on turning my eyes from the nightcap to Priscilla, it forcibly struck me that her air, though not her figure, and the expression of her face, but not its features, had a resemblance to what I had often seen in a friend of mine, one of the most gifted women of the age. I cannot describe it. The points easiest to convey to the reader were a certain curve of the shoulders and a partial closing of the eyes, which seemed to look more penetratingly into my own eyes through the narrowed apertures than if they had been open at full width. It was a singular anomaly of likeness, coexisting with perfect dissimilitude. "'Will you give me the letter, Priscilla?' said I. She started, put the letter into my hand, and quite lost the look that had drawn my notice." Priscilla, I inquired, did you ever see Miss Margaret Fuller? No. No, she answered. Because, said I, you reminded me of her just now, and it happens, strangely enough, that this very letter is from her. Priscilla, for whatever reason, looked very much discomposed. Yeah, because it's weird. I wish people would not fancy such odd things in me, she said rather petulantly. How could I possibly make myself resemble this lady merely by holding her letter in my hand? Certainly, Priscilla... There's some sort of mesmeric point about print literature being made there, I Mm. think. Yeah, that's interesting. It would puzzle me to explain it, I replied. Nor do I suppose that the letter had anything to do with it. And here we get some more It was just a coincidence, nothing more. She hastened out of the room, and this was the last that I saw of Priscilla 
until I cease to be an invalid. Being much alone during my recovery, I read interminably in Mr. Emerson's essays, The Dial, Carlyle's works, George Sand's romances, lent me by Zenobia, and other books which one or another of the brethren or sisterhood had brought with them. Agreeing in little else, most of these utterances were like the cry of some solitary sentinel whose station was on the outposts of the advance guard of human progression, or sometimes the voice came sadly from among the shattered ruins of the past, but yet had a hopeful echo in the future. They were well adapted, better at least than any other intellectual products, the volatile essence of which had heretofore tinctured a printed page to pilgrims like ourselves, whose present bivouac was considerably further into the waste of chaos than any mortal army of crusaders had ever marched before. Fourier. Fourier's works also, in a series of horribly tedious volumes, attracted a good deal of my attention from the analogy which I could not but recognize between his system and our own. There was far less resemblance, it is true, than the world chose to imagine, inasmuch as the two theories differed as widely as the zenith from the nadir in their main principles. I talked about Fourier to Hollingsworth and translated, for his benefit, some of the passages that chiefly impressed me. When, as a consequence of human improvement, said I, the globe shall arrive at its final perfection, the great ocean is to be converted into a particular kind of lemonade, such as was fashionable at Paris in Fourier's time. So I'm calling bullshit here that this is the part that impressed Coverdale. Like yeah. Hawthorne never misses a point in this book to make fun of communists. Oh, so yeah. like here, I told this part that impressed me the most about uh, Fourier and it's the part literally every critic of Fourier mentions. Yeah. Yeah. It's like being, it's, it's kind of those little things being like, uh, like, yeah, Obama's great president. Uh, he, all of all the 48 states. Yeah. <laughs> That's a yeah, good one, dude. Nice. Yeah. Some of the passages that chiefly impressed me. When, as a consequence of human improvement, said I, the globe shall arrive at its final perfection, the great ocean is to be converted into a particular kind of lemonade, such as was fashionable at Paris in Fourier's time. He calls it limonade à cèdre. It is positively a fact. Just imagine the city docks filled every day with a flood tide of this delectable beverage. Why did not the Frenchman make punch of it at once? asked Hollingsworth. The jackdaws would be delighted to go down in ships and Silly. do business in such an element. I further proceeded to explain, as well as I modestly could, several points of Fourier's system, illustrating them with here and there a page or two, and asking Hollingsworth's opinion as to the expediency of introducing these beautiful peculiarities into our own practice. Let me hear no more of it, cried he in utter disgust. I never will forgive this fellow. He has committed the unpardonable sin. For what more monstrous iniquity could the devil himself contrive than to choose the selfish principle, the principle of all human wrong, the very blackness of man's heart, the portion of ourselves which we shudder at, and which it is the whole aim of spiritual discipline to eradicate, to choose it as the master workman of his system, to seize upon and foster whatever vile, petty, sordid, filthy, bestial, and abominable corruptions have cankered into our nature, to be the efficient instruments of his infernal regeneration. And his consummated paradise, as he pictures it, would be worthy of the agency which he counts upon for establishing it, 
the nauseous villain. Nevertheless, remarked I, in consideration of the promised delights of his system, so very proper, as they certainly are, to be appreciated by Fourier's countrymen, I cannot but wonder that universal France did not adopt his theory at a moment's warning. But is there not something very characteristic of his nation in Fourier's manner of putting forth his views? He makes no claim to inspiration. He has not persuaded himself, as Swedenborg did, that as any other than a Frenchman would, with a mission of like importance to communicate, that he speaks with authority from above. He promulgates his system, as far as I can perceive, entirely on his own responsibility. He has searched out and discovered the whole counsel of the Almighty in respect to mankind, past, present, and for exactly seventy thousand years to come, yeah. by the mere force and cunning of his individual See, intellect. Doesn't seem convincing. Take the book out of my sight, said Hollingsworth, with great virulence of expression, or, I tell you fairly, I shall fling it in the fire. And as for Fourier, <laughs> let him make a, a paradise, yeah. if he can, of Literally. Gehenna, where, as I conscientiously believe, he is floundering at this moment. And bellowing, I suppose, said I, not that I felt any ill will towards Fourier, but merely wanted to give the finishing touch to Hollingsworth's image, bellowing for the least drop of his beloved Limonade à Cèdre. There is but... You're the poet, and that's the best you can come up with? Got him. Just got him. ...little profit to be expected in attempting to argue with a man who allows himself to declaim in this manner, so I drop the subject. So, yeah, I mean, that's, the, that's one instance in which... It, there is something put on page for reasons that aren't to laugh at communists, but that's the effect of the actual section. We'll get to the other one a bit later, but um, yeah, the idea that you'd be like, what it's, it's like, you know, what really, um, what really this Bill Clinton guy is really like, I'm reading more about him and liking his stuff, especially his, uh, intern policy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, it's really interesting. You hear about this though. He, uh, he was lied under oath several times. It's interesting. Just interesting. Yeah. I mean, just the most wacky thing. Yeah. Um, You know, he's like a really good politician, like Rahm Emanuel. Like he gets things done, like secret black side prisons to like torture people in. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Especially like, um, Reagan was a genius. And then talking about his, how his wife was like. Uh, into uh into astrology yeah. or whatever or not even but something even weirder than astrology um so let's go into uh, a little bit more of the paradise now book um to dis- to sort of go into what brook farm how they thought of themselves uh, in relation to foyerism and how that um actually that's where we'll the part we'll discuss now um by farming cooperatively and living simply ripley enthused they would have plenty of free time to write and think, a miscalculation about farm living made by generations of urban intellectuals. Along with farming, they could start a school in which to test some of the unorthodox pedagogical ideas they had been kicking around. Maybe they would even make a little money. At the very least they would escape the mercantile hubbub of Boston to live, as Thoreau wrote of his time by Walden Pond, deliberately. The previous summer, The Ripleys had vacationed at a dairy farm near the village of West Roxbury, nine miles outside Boston. The property, owned by the Ellis family, 
was beautiful 175 acres of rolling pasture land abutting a pine forest with views of a gentle bend in the Charles River. Through the middle of a central meadow ran a small stream for which the place was named, Brook Farm. It was for sale, and Ripley suggested to his friends that they buy it. In the early spring of 1841, George and Sophia Ripley, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and a small group of like-minded men and women made a down payment. By May, 13 of them had relocated to the property. They moved into the large house that sat at the top of the long meadow overlooking the distant river. The building, which they dubbed the hive, was shaded by an ancient sycamore. The downstairs parlor housed Ripley's extensive library. The kitchen and dining room were large enough for the whole community to eat together. The Brook Farmers, as they began to call themselves, may have been influenced by all the talk of association issuing from Brisbane and the Tribune, but they did not set out to form a phalanx. They knew about Fourier from Brisbane's columns and book, but when they sat around the stove that spring in West Roxbury, there was no talk of attractive industry or passional attraction. In fact, soon after Ripley proposed buying the property, the dial endorsed the endeavor while explicitly rejecting any connection to Fourier. Our imagination rebels against Fourier's attempt to circumvent moral freedom, and imprison it in his phalanx. Instead, the dial described Brook Farm and its ambitions in Christian terms. The new community would be a reorganization of society itself, on those very principles of love to God and love to man, which Jesus Christ realized in his own daily life. Tapping into the era's pervasive millenarianism, the author equated the inauguration of Brook Farm with a, very, very, broadly conceived notion of the millennium as a revolution in virtue, for each man to think and live on this method of mutual aid is perhaps the second coming of Christ. Even so, no particular religious dogma, except perhaps the anti-dogma dogma of liberal Unitarianism, held sway at Brook Farm. The community's first constitution prohibited any sort of religious test for membership. More than any other 19th century utopian community, the first year at Brook Farm resembles the modern image of a commune. The early members were middle-class intellectuals and reformer types Harvard grads, feminists, musicians, poets, health foodists, liberal Unitarians, socialists, and abolitionists. Hawthorne called them a knot of dreamers. Their ambitions were more aesthetic than economic or programmatic. They aspired to merge three separate institutions a farm, a school, and a home into one harmonious whole. They intended to proceed by intuition and consensus. On their modest Arcadia, they set out to build, as they put it, paradise anew milking cows in the morning and writing blank verse at night by the fire. The biggest names in the Transcendental Club didn't join. Emerson, the living axis around which New England intellectual life turned, had initially been enthusiastic about the idea. Like Ripley, he was sometimes frustrated with the navel-gazing mindset of his transcendentalist cohort. The practicality of Ripley's plan the thought of actually doing something appealed to him. But when the time came to join up, his need for privacy and his reflexive distaste for what he called communities of opinion kept him on the sidelines, having helped encourage the idea, he felt guilty about not pitching in, telling Ripley that his decision had been reached very slowly and, I may almost say, with penitence. Asterisk 31 While he never officially joined, Emerson was a frequent guest at the farm. Thoreau also stayed away, coming only for a few short visits. He was less ambivalent than his friend Emerson, I'd rather keep Bachelor's Hall in hell than go to board in heaven. The brilliant <laughs> Margaret Fuller, America's first female public intellectual and a close friend to many of the founding Brook Farmers, didn't join either, 
believing from the outset that Ripley's scheme would fail. Like Emerson, she visited often, taking a carriage from Boston to the farm to read aloud from early drafts of her latest work and to be worshipped by the rapt young women of the community. The transcendentalists did not tend to advocate any particular economic doctrine, but they worried in a general way about the moral and aesthetic fallout of capitalism. In an 1837 address at Harvard, Thoreau, a graduating senior, described the commercial spirit as a national illness, it infuses into all our thoughts and affections a degree of its own selfishness, oh, yeah, we become yeah. selfish in our patriotism, selfish in our domestic relations, selfish in our religion. That same year, Emerson told the Cambridge Phi Beta Kappa Society that public and private avarice make the air we breathe thick and fat, young men of the fairest promise, who begin life upon our shores, are hindered from action by disgust which the principles on which business is managed inspire, and turn drudges, or die of disgust some of them suicides. Ripley shared these views. He hoped to make Brook Farm a place where the pressure of competitive institutions could be toned down to substitute, as he put it, a system of brotherly cooperation for one of selfish competition. But he did not seek to abolish private property. The evils arising from trade and money, he wrote, grow out of social organization, not from an intrinsic vice in the things themselves. The Brook farmers were emphatically not communists in the Shaker or Owenite mold, but, as one of them put it, they hoped to found a city of refuge for men and women who refused to be absorbed by money-making. In one way or another, all the 19th-century utopias animated the tricky negotiation between individualism and communalism that defines civic life for the millenarian sects the Shakers, the perfectionists, the Raphites the obvious desirability of collectivism over individualism was a matter of scriptural imperative. To them, private liberty was hardly a value worth preserving. Elsewhere, things were less clear-cut. George Ripley was particularly keen to synthesize the two poles of this dialectic. He was not a radical by nature. As an undergraduate at Harvard, he had been shunned by his classmates for refusing to join the custard riots that occasionally broke out over the lousy food in the commons. He arrived at Brook Farm carrying the intellectual baggage of transcendentalism, including its reverence for the moral and spiritual intuition of the solitary person. For some transcendentalists, this emphasis on private contemplation led to an active social disengagement. Thoreau made his stand on the shore of Walden Pond. Emerson remained at his farm, writing that no law can be sacred to me but that of my own nature. Addressing himself to a hypothetical do-gooder seeking contributions, he famously asked, are they my poor? For George Ripley, this moral exaltation of the individual was counterweighted by a nagging sense of universal brotherhood and impulse toward what we would now call social justice. Before he left his pulpit on Purchase Street, he told his congregation, I cannot witness the glaring inequalities of condition, the hollow pretension of pride, the scornful apathy with which many urge the prostration of man, the burning zeal with which they run the race of selfish competition, with no thought for the elevation of their brethren. Ripley's response to Emerson's hypothetical philanthropist would have been an unequivocal yes, they were his poor. So yeah, I think that gives a very good summary of the relationship to uh, of the transcendentalist to the Brook Farm there. Uh, let's move to the second part where uh, I, I think Hawthorne is, a, is dwelling a bit too much on uh, making fun of, uh, of the Brook Farmers, even though... Um, He's saying it as if he's sympathetic to him. <laughs> After a reasonable training, the yeoman life throve well with us. 
Our faces took the sunburn kindly, our chests gained in compass, and our shoulders in breadth and squareness. Our great brown fists looked as if they had never been capable of kid gloves. The plow, the hoe, the scythe, and the hayfork grew familiar to our grasp. The oxen responded to our voices. We could do almost as fair a day's work as Silas Foster himself, sleep dreamlessly after it, and awake at daybreak with only a little stiffness of the joints, which was usually quite gone by breakfast time. To be sure, our next neighbors pretended to be incredulous <laughs> as to our real proficiency in the business which we had taken in hand. They told slanderous fables about our inability to yoke our own oxen, or to drive them afield when yoked, or to release the poor brutes from their conjugal bond at nightfall. They had the face to say, too, that the cows laughed at our awkwardness at milking time, and invariably kicked over the pails, partly in consequence of our putting the stool on the wrong side, and partly because, taking offense at the whisking of their tails, we were in the habit of holding these natural fly-flappers with one hand and milking with the other. They further averred that we hoed up whole acres of Indian corn and other crops and drew the earth carefully about the weeds. That's the second time uh, Indian displacement has been mentioned in this. Uh, True. The f first was them deciding not to go back to the original name. And that we raised 500 tufts of burdock, mistaking them for cabbages, and that by dint of unskilled planting, few of our seeds ever came up at all, or, if they did come up, it was stern foremost, and that we spent the better part of the month of June in reversing a field of beans, which had thrust themselves out of the ground in this unseemly way. They quoted it as nothing more than an ordinary occurrence for one or other of us to crop off two or three fingers of a morning by our clumsy use of the hay-cutter. Finally, and as an ultimate catastrophe, these mendacious rogues circulated a report that we communitarians were exterminated to the last man by severing ourselves asunder with a sweep of our own scythes, and that the world had lost nothing by this little accident. But this was pure envy and malice on the part of the neighboring farmers. The peril of our new way of life was not lest we should fail in becoming practical agriculturists, but that we should probably cease to be anything else. While our enterprise lay all in theory, uh, so, yeah, as we find out, Hawthorne discovers that you're not able to both be a laborer and a writer, and that's why he left in real life, and uh, it gets tougher there, too. Um, what's interesting there is he sounds like a, a hopeful reformer or revolutionary or whatever. And in the very next section, they're like all prancing around. It's called Hollingsworth, Zenobia, and Priscilla, and they're all basically prancing around um, having fun. Priscilla's being uh, mischievous. Coverdale decides to buzz kill her and he's like um, uh, he's talking to Priscilla about why she's always so happy accountability than sorrow it must show good cause or the echo of its laughter comes back drearily Priscilla's gaiety moreover was of a nature that showed me how delicate an instrument she was and what fragile harp strings were her nerves as they made sweet music at the airiest touch it would require but a stronger one to burst them all asunder. Absurd as it might be, I tried to reason with her and persuade her not to be so joyous, thinking that if she would draw less lavishly upon her fund of happiness, it would last the longer. I remember doing so one summer evening 
when we laborers sat looking on, like goldsmith's old folks under the village thorn tree, while the young people were at their sports. What is the use or sense of being so very gay? I said to Priscilla, while she was taking breath, after a great frolic. I love to see a sufficient cause for everything, and I can see none for this. Pray tell me now, what kind of a world you imagine this to be, which you are so merry in? <laughs> I never think about it at all, answered Priscilla, laughing. Mm. But this I am sure of, that it is a world where everybody is kind to me, and where I love everybody. My heart keeps dancing within me, and all the foolish things which you see me do are only the motions of my heart. How can I be dismal if my heart will not let me? Have you nothing dismal to remember? I suggested. If not, then, indeed, you are very fortunate. Ah, said Priscilla, slowly. And then came that unintelligible gesture when she seemed to be listening to a distant voice. For my part, I continued, beneficently seeking to overshadow her with my own somber humor, my past life has been a tiresome one enough, yet I would rather look backward ten times than forward once. For, little as we know of our life to come, we may be very sure, for one thing, that the good we aim at will not be attained. People never do get just the good they seek. If it come at all, it is something else which they never dreamed of and did not particularly want. It's ex basically exactly what he's written in the Pierce biography. Then, again, we may rest certain that our friends of today will not be our friends of a few years hence. But if we keep one of them, it will be at the expense of the others, and most probably we shall keep none. To be sure, there are more to be had, but who cares about making a new set of friends, even should they be better than those around us? No new friends. Not I, said Priscilla. I will live and die with these. Well, but let the future go, resumed I. As for the present moment, if we could look into the hearts where we wish to be most valued, what should you expect to see? One's own likeness in the innermost, holiest niche? Ah, uh, I don't know. It may not be there at all. It may be a dusty image thrust aside into a corner, and by and by to be flung out of doors where any foot may trample upon it. If not today, then tomorrow. And so, Priscilla, I do not see much wisdom in being so very merry in this kind of a world. It had taken me nearly seven years of worldly life to hive up the bitter honey which I here offered to Priscilla, and she rejected it. I don't believe one word of what you say, she replied, laughing anew. You made me sad for a minute by talking about the past, but the past never comes back again. Do we dream the same dream twice? There is nothing else that I am afraid of. That sentiment is like anathema to everything Hawthorne has ever written. Just the idea of like, the past is over. Yeah, whatever, his, man. His entire artistic project is, it's not even remotely over. Yeah. You're just reliving it constantly. Yeah, it's constant archetypal. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, I do like the sentiment of being like, just like, you do realize we're on the same planet, right? Like, what what are you so fucking happy about? Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the earth sucks. And, and sucks. And it's like, that's his, that's one of, like, very few interactions he goes directly to her with. And yeah. that's one of them. And it's like, stop being so happy, little girl. It's like his olive branch of like, we don't really know each other, but the world is shit. Yeah. 
um uh by the way vote for franklin pierce um so uh then the next chapter a visitor from town um basically uh moody returns uh coverdale and hollingsworth talked to him about it um uh, there's a little bit on child labor there with uh, Priscilla that I think, um, I mean, it definitely comes out a bit later with her being the veiled lady and all, but yeah. also well, making these purses. I mean, we already gave that yeah, away. Yeah. Um, uh, then chapter 11 is the wood path. Coverdale's like, I need a vacation. <laughs> um, and he walks, uh, walks to a little, like a little treehouse area he's, he's made. Um, while he's walking there, he meets Westervelt, the mysterious yeah. Westervelt, creepy doctor uh, creepy guy who sort of um reveals a lot of important plot information about yeah, yeah. different characters and what might be motivating them oh, creepy why are you telling me this stuff about um, other characters yeah and he asks about uh where he can meet zenobia and um they have this weird laugh he has fake teeth that grosses uh coverdale out <laughs> um and then uh coverdale goes up into coverdale's hermitage in chapter 12 where he uh, lights a cigar, uh, reads the dial, and over he- or looks down and sees Hollinsworth like abusing some cows or cattle, <laughs> uh, and then overhears Westervelt and Zenobia. An interesting way that he's like, I thought I'd be able to uh, overhear them uh, clearly, but li- life isn't like a romance. But it's like <laughs> this is called the Blydale romance. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he overhears them talking about Priscilla, and unsure what uh, that is. And the very next chapter, Zenobia. Uh, Zenobia's legend. She has a spooky story um, to tell the the class, um, and uh, it turns out to be kind of about Priscilla. It's about the veiled lady, and at the end of it, she throws the veil onto Priscilla, and Priscilla's like, "Well, this makes me sad and feel a bit weird about stuff." Um, it's a nice digression that chapter because it kind of returned me to uh, Hawthorne's like short story mode. Yeah, it's not even really hidden that well like the preface in the chapter is like now Zenobia is going to tell a story I think if we do like a collection for um, Halloween um, like spooky tales like mm-hmm. the, the the veiled lady portions for both Zenobia's part here and a little bit of the Westerveld show later they are genuinely spooky little spooky little tales so Zenobia has this information about um, Priscilla from Westerville that uh, um, Coverdale wasn't entirely o- able to overhear. So now they go to Elliot's pulpit. And Elliot's pulpit, you might have remember John Elliot from our um, our uh, uh, Mary Rowlandson and King Philip's War uh, mm-hmm. as the guy who made all the Bibles for the uh, uh, Native Americans to try to that will help colonize them, basically. Um, um, the Norton critical... Uh, has a note for John Elliot here. 1604-1690, the Puritan minister of Roxbury, Massachusetts, was known as the Apostle to the Indians for his missionary work among them. In order to preach effectively, he learned the language of the Massachusetts Indians and translated the Bible into their tongue. On the significance of this illusion, yeah, yeah. Um, so they're all hanging out at Elliot's Rock, where he supposed that by tradition he uh, preached to the Indians. And they all give their own little speeches. Here we see Hollingsworth sort of revealed as a sort of despotic, like misogynistic fascist. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what you, you spend enough time with anyone. They're going to reveal themselves. Yeah. Unfortunately. Hey, when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. Oh, yeah. Um, who was that again? That was uh, Tony Morrison. Let me look that up. 
Oh, Maya Angelou. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, this is this is that moment uh, where Hollingsworth sort of... <laughs> I'm a Nazi! Yeah. What's, what's he trying to tell us? Yeah, exactly. We don't know this verb language yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's not a concentration camp. Since her interview with Westervelt, Zenobia's continual inequalities of temper had been rather difficult for her friends to bear. On the first... We get some... Uh, Sort of misogynistic psychoanalyzing from Coverdale first, though. Yeah. Sunday after that incident, when Hollingsworth had clambered down from Elliot's pulpit, she declaimed with great earnestness and passion, nothing short of anger, on the injustice which the world did to women, and equally to itself, by not allowing them, in freedom and honor, and with the fullest welcome, their natural utterance in public. It shall not always be so, cried she. If I live another year, I will lift up my own voice in behalf of woman's wider liberty. She perhaps saw me smile. <laughs> what matter of ridicule do you find in this, Miles Coverdale? exclaimed Zenobia, with a flash of anger in her eyes. That smile, permit me to say, makes me suspicious of a low tone of feeling and shallow thought. It is my belief, yes, and my prophecy, should I die before it happens... That, when my sex shall achieve its rights, there will be ten eloquent women where there is now one eloquent man. Thus far, no woman in the world has ever once spoken out her whole heart and her whole mind. The mistrust and disapproval of the vast bulk of society throttles us, as with two gigantics at our throats. We mumble a few weak words and leave a thousand better ones unsaid. You let us write a little, it is true, on a limited range of subjects. Mm -hmm. But the pen is not for woman. Her power is too natural and immediate. It is with the living voice alone that she can compel the world to recognize the light of her intellect and the depth of her heart. Now, though I could not well say so to Zenobia, I had not smiled from any unworthy estimate of woman, or in denial of the claims which she is beginning to put forth. What amused and puzzled me was the fact that women, however intellectually superior, so seldom disquiet themselves about the rights or wrongs of their sex, unless their own individual affections chance to lie in idleness or to be ill at ease. They are not natural performers, but become such by the pressure of exceptional misfortune. Mm. I could measure Zenobia's inward trouble by the animosity with which she now took up the general quarrel of women. Some strong Jordan Peterson energy coming here. Oh, yeah. Like, hey, why don't you clean up your room? Well, it's interesting that they want to free the world, but they never criticize themselves constantly, yeah. like the way I am in my head. Yeah. Are you sure you want to reform society, or do you just need to get laid? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I measure Zenobia's inward trouble by the animosity with which she now took up the general quarrel of woman against man. I will give you leave, Zenobia, replied I, to fling your utmost scorn upon me, if you ever hear me utter a sentiment unfavorable to the widest liberty which woman has yet dreamed of. I would give her all she asks, and add a great deal more, which she will not be the party to demand, but which men, if they were generous and wise, would grant of their own free motion. For instance, I should love dearly, for the next thousand years at least, to have all government devolve into the hands of women. 
I hate to be ruled by my own sex. It <laughs> excites my jealousy and wounds my pride. Uh. It is the iron sway of bodily force which abases us in our compelled submission. But how sweet the free, generous courtesy with which I would kneel before a woman ruler. Yes, if she were young and beautiful, said Zenobia, laughing. But how if she were sixty and a fright? Ah, it is you that rate womanhood low, said I. Yeah. But let me go on. I have never found it possible to suffer a bearded priest so near my heart and conscience as to do me any spiritual good. I blush <laughs> at the very thought. Oh, in the better order of things, heaven grant that the ministry of souls may be left in charge of women. The gates of the blessed city will be thronged with the multitude that enter in when that day comes. The task belongs to woman. God meant it for her. He has endowed her with the religious sentiment in its utmost depth and purity, refined from that gross intellectual alloy with which every masculine theologist, save only one, who merely veiled himself in mortal and masculine shape, but was, in truth, divine, has been prone to mingle it. I have always envied the Catholics their faith in that sweet, sacred virgin mother who stands between them and the deity intercepting somewhat of his awful splendor, but permitting his love to stream upon the worshiper more intelligibly to human comprehension through the medium of a woman's tenderness. Have I not said enough, Zenobia? I cannot think that this is true, observed Priscilla, who had been gazing at me with great disapproving eyes, and I am sure I do not wish it to be true. Poor child, exclaimed Zenobia rather contemptuously, she is the type of womanhood such as man has spent centuries in making it. Mm. He is never content unless he can degrade himself by stooping towards what he loves. In denying us our rights, he betrays even more blindness to his own interests than profligate disregard of ours. Now, this is very Margaret Fuller. It's like sort yeah. of the great lawsuit later on. Well, this whole section kind of feels like a cursory glance of women in the 19th century. Right. Like, wrong, like... Uh, if if this was like if you were if this was a summary i would give it like a d yeah but it you can definitely tell they've read it yes own interests then profligate disregard of ours is this true asked priscilla with simplicity turning to hollingsworth is it all true that mr coverdale and zenobia have been saying no priscilla answered hollingsworth with his customary bluntness they have neither of them spoken one true word yet do you despise woman? asked Zenobia. Mm, here he goes. Ah, Hollingsworth, that would be most ungrateful. Despise her? No, cried Hollingsworth, lifting his great shaggy head and shaking it at us, while his eyes glowed almost fiercely. She is the most admirable handiwork of God in her true place and character. Her place is at man's side. Her office, that of the sympathizer, the unreserved, unquestioning believer, the recognition withheld in every other manner, but given in pity through woman's heart, lest man should utterly lose faith in himself, the echo of God's own voice pronouncing, It is well done. All the separate action of woman is, and ever has been, and always shall be, false, foolish, vain, destructive of her own best and holiest qualities, void of every good effect, and productive of intolerable mischiefs. Man is a wretch without woman, but woman is a monster without man as her acknowledged yes. principle. 
as true as I had once a mother whom I loved. Here he goes. Were there any possible prospect of woman's taking the social stand, which some of them, poor, miserable, abortive creatures, who only dream of such things because they have missed woman's peculiar happiness, or because nature made them really neither man nor woman, if there were a chance of their attaining the end which these petticoated monstrosities <laughs> have in view, I would call upon my own sex to use its physical force, that unmistakable evidence of sovereignty, mm. to scourge them back within their proper bounds. But it will not be needful. The heart of time womanhood knows where its own sphere is, and never seeks to stray beyond it. Never was mortal blessed, if blessing it were, with a glance of such entire acquiescence and unquestioning faith, happy in its completeness, as our little Priscilla unconsciously bestowed on Hollingsworth. She seemed to take the sentiment from his lips into her heart, and brood over it in perfect content. The very woman whom he pictured, the gentle parasite, the soft reflection of a more powerful existence, sat there at his feet. I looked at Zenobia, however, fully expecting her to resent, as I felt, by the indignant ebullition of my own blood, that she ought this outrageous affirmation of what struck me as the intensity of masculine egotism. It centered everything in itself, and deprived woman of her very soul, her inexpressible and unfathomable all, to make it a mere incident in the great sum of man. Hollingsworth had boldly uttered what he, and millions of despots like him, really felt. Without intending it, he had disclosed the wellspring of all these troubled waters. Now, if ever, it surely behooved Zenobia to be the champion of her sex. But, to my surprise, and indignation too, she only looked humbled. Some tears sparkled in her eyes, but they were wholly of grief, not anger. Well, be it so, was all she said. I at least have deep cause to think you right. Let man be but manly and godlike, and woman is only too ready to become to him what you say. I smiled, somewhat bitterly, it is true, in contemplation of my own ill luck. How little did these two women care for me, who had freely conceded all their claims, and a great deal more out of the fullness of my heart, while Hollingsworth, by some necromancy of his horrible injustice, seemed to have brought them both to his feet. Women almost invariably behave thus, thought I. What does the fact mean? Is it their nature, or is it, at last, the result of ages of compelled degradation? And, in either case, will it be possible ever to redeem them? So that is uh, Coverdale voicing a very um, incel-heavy uh, oh, yeah. sentiment. And for those who don't know the incel... It's short for involuntary celibate. It doesn't mean anybody who's not having sex. It means specifically men who uh, join these sort of online communities to join in hating women because they're not able to have, you know, a sex find a sex sexual partner. Yeah, they've decided there's like social currents that have like removed them from any pos like any possible dating scenario. Yeah, and, rather than like you know a series of their own choices. And so, like uh, in the number of cases, they end up doing mass shootings or you know running over crowds with buses and stuff like that. Yeah, they basically just like edge each other online until one pushes it yeah. over the edge. Um, the San not was it not San Bernardino one of the California shootings. Um, yeah. Um. So uh, yeah, there's a uh, there's 
that uh, that Hollingsworth thing is pretty amazing writing. Um, he falls into the old pundit's trap of like, well, if I'm pissing everybody off, I must be doing something right. Hawthorne? It's, yeah. And yeah, it's like, yeah. no, dude, like you're just getting like more and more agitated and be like, like, how far can I push this? Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, a- after this, the, the story gets, a, begins to get a bit more dreamlike and we can kind of yeah. move through the, actually let's, let's now let's go to the rest of that, um, um, D.H. Lawrence stuff on the plot and mm-hmm. then uh, we can come back and then breeze through the rest of the book here. But that's crazy. That part where he's like, He's like, women are actually far more wicked and like vile than man. And he's like, if you ever get enough power, we'll do something. We're about going to kill you. A threat of force. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's like, and sorry, like, he's like, last time I checked, that's why we rule. Yeah. Because I could kill you. It, it, that is just fascism and authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah it really is like that, like, that, like, hitting pedal to the metal right into a brick wall, like, almost like suicidal. Plot one I, Nathaniel, at once catch cold and have to be put to bed. He calls Coverdale Nathaniel because it is yeah. pretty, pretty loosely, pretty obviously. And actually, this is the first novel that is uh, that he's written in first person. Scarlet and uh, Seven Gables. Oh yeah, I guess I was thinking like the Custom House is from him, but then he's never in the the book after that right. introductory chapter. Am nursed with inordinate tenderness by the blacksmith, whose great hands are gentler than a woman's, etc. The two men love one another with a love surpassing the love of women so long as the healing and salvation business lasts. When Nathaniel wants to get well and have a soul of his own, he turns with hate to this black-bearded, booming salvationist, Hephaestus of the underworld, hates him for tyrannous monomaniac. Plot 2 Zenobia, that clever, lustrous woman, is fascinated by the criminal-saving blacksmith and would have him at any price. Meanwhile, she has the subtlest current of understanding with the frail but deep Nathaniel, and she takes the white lily half-pityingly, half-contemptuously under a rich and glossy dark wing. Plot 3. The blacksmith is after Zenobia to get her money for his criminal asylum, of which, of course, he will be the first inmate. Plot 4. Nathaniel also feels his mouth watering for the dark, luscious Zenobia. Plot 5. The white lily, Priscilla, vaporously festering, turns out to be the famous veiled lady of public spiritualist shows, she whom the undesirable husband called the professor has used as a medium. Also, she is Zenobia's half-sister. Debacle. Nobody wants Zenobia in the end. She goes off without her flower. The blacksmith marries Priscilla. Nathaniel dribblingly confesses that he, too, has loved Prissy all the while. Boo-hoo. <laughs> Conclusion. A few years after, Nathaniel meets the blacksmith in a country lane near a humble cottage, leaning totteringly on the arm of the frail but fervent Priscilla. Gone are all dreams of asylums, and the savior of criminals can't even save himself from his own veiled lady. There you have a nice little bunch of idealists, transcendentalists, brook farmers, and disintegrated gentry, all going slightly rotten. Um, so just to briefly uh, go over the second part of this uh, book, we basically just covered the first half. 
after uh, Hollingsworth basically is like, I'm a, a men's rights activist, yeah. a violent men's rights activist, yeah. um, a terror agent. Uh, a, the, him and uh, in, in, in chapter 16, a crisis. The crisis is him and uh, uh, Coverdale and Hollingsworth are talking about you know how it's going. And Coverdale's like, I don't really think this place is a place until somebody dies here. So where should we put the um, graveyard? And yeah. cover- and then uh, Hollingsworth... Weird, weird sentiment. But yeah. yeah. Yeah, like Hollingsworth's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Also, this is all bullshit, and we should just do my plan for criminal justice reform. <laughs> yeah, so um, we're never going to do criminal justice reform. Is that the idea? Yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. And he's always so like, uh, I'm going to take this place over. Yeah. Uh, are you going to be a part of it or not? And Coverdale just keeps asking, like, well, what are you going to do with Priscilla and Zenobia? Which is like... <laughs> <laughs> Not the most practical question I would ask about yeah. like joining a utopian commune. Like, or how are we dividing up the gals? Yeah. Um, I want the young one. And like, that's, uh, that's something you don't want in your crew, basically. Yeah. So Coverdale's like, uh, I'm going to leave this place. So he does. Um, in a, He leaves without kissing any of the women. Uh, he makes a point of saying yeah. that. Uh, more incel energy there. Well, yeah, you know, like I, I also do that whenever I leave a room, but, you know, I just haven't noted it's it. It's not it's a my, point of anxiety. No, yeah, yeah, I should bring that up more often. Like, and I'm not kissing anyone yeah. before I leave. Um, doesn't say goodbye to uh, Hollingsworth, and uh, Silas gives him some shit for leaving. Um, goes to a hotel, you get some urban stuff. There's some rear, 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 <clears throat> rear window vibes, strong yeah. rear window vibes. Um, and there's also this whole section has a Coverdale vibe to it because he leaves the uh, community and then later he's like, I wonder if they'll even notice I was gone uh, Yeah, sort of thing. Um, but so yeah, he's in, there's a lot of 19th century amusements here. Um, move on to chapter 18, the boarding house mysteriously out of the back of his, uh, window, he sees Zenobia and Westervelt, um, talking through in a boarding house and this is this is where it gets like and some um readings of this is this is all sort of like a psychotic break and this is mm-hmm. none of this is really happening or it's all dreamlike um because it's very weird that he's just like in his hotel and then randomly there's Zenobia and Westervelt yeah um, not too dissimilar from the ending of uh House of the Seven Gables where yeah. it just it just kind of goes off the rails and you're and it's like it does have this like dream logic of like people showing up at the right place at the right time and then be like, and I have this information and it's for you. And it's like, what? right. It's like that weird mode he went into at the end of seven Gables. He gets into earlier here. I wonder if it's like something about like you trace, you like trace out the like pacing of the novel and you can kind of tell when the author's like, uh, I gotta get let's this wrap out. this up. Yeah. So, uh, Zenobia sees him spying on her and throws the sash down. Um, next chapter, um, Zenobia's drawing room, Coverdale's like, I should go apologize, kind of apologize, but instead he just goes and needles her about how, um, Hollingsworth likes Priscilla more, <laughs> basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, who, who among us has not tried to apologize and then just start attacking them yeah, for their own choices? And we didn't get into this, but we should mention this while we're talking about Coverdale's incel energy is there's a huge section in like one of the earlier chapters where he's obsessing over whether uh, Zenobia is a virgin or not, yep. basically. Um, so chapter 20, they vanish. Uh, Priscilla, um, yeah, in, in the previous chapter, Coverdale's like, so where's Priscilla? Is he with Coverdale? and uh, Or is he with Hollinsworth? And Zenobi's like, okay, she'll come. And then he goes and like, um, he literally asks, uh, Coverdale asks Pris- um, 
Coverdale asks Zenobia if Hollinsworth has seen Priscilla in the dress that she's wearing because she looks so good. Um, <laughs> this needlessly um, needling Zenobia. And actually, uh, and, and yeah, we're not going to play it, but um, Zenobia's like, why are you doing this? And he's like, it's not because I'm like, um, you know, a prurient interest. It's because mm. I have a sense of duty. And she's like, I've seen the sense of duty. It's how people mask their bigotry. Um, Got him. Uh, chapter 21, an old acquaintance Coverdale goes to a saloon, meets Moody, and gets some truth from him there regarding um, basically Zenobia's financial status, her and her relationship to Moody. Basically, Moody was the original father of Zenobia. He ha- got disgraced, gave Zenobia to a wealthier family, and then later and then later Moody had Priscilla. Zenobia's original guardians have died, which means that Moody is in charge of the estate, so he gets to decide whether that goes to Zenobia or to Priscilla based on how um, Zen, um, he perceives Zenobia to act. So, again, a bit patriarchal bullshit there, but um, that's chapter two to Faltneroy. Um, chapter 23 is another weird dream logic one where um, Coverdale goes to see the veiled lady, and all of a sudden he's sitting right behind Hollinsworth. Oh, yeah. And he's like, "Hey, Hollinsworth, what's up with uh, Zenob? Or what's up with Zenobia?" He's like, "She's at Bloodale. What are you talking about, you weirdo?" <laughs> yeah. And he's like, "What about Priscilla?" And he's like, <gasps> "And then all of a sudden, we see uh, Priscilla um, at Westerville does his shit on stage, and Priscilla's up there, and Hollinsworth's like, you know what? Let's stop this. You're safe now. You come with me." Yeah. Twenty-four, chapter twenty-four. Coverdale goes back to Brook or uh, Blythedale. And there's a masquerade going on. People dressed up like Native Americans, people in blackface. Um, yeah, uh, a 19th it's a party, century party. Yeah, yeah. They're, try- they're trying to have a good time, kind of um, unwinding a bit. Yeah, I mean, there was a guy dressed as Kentucky, uh, Kentucky woodsman too. So yeah, um, yeah, no one complained about that. Yeah, no one, no one's <laughs> freaking out about that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and it's another weird thing where it seems like an anxiety dream because. Coverdale like hears them and he starts laughing and people hear him laughing and uh, he runs away. They're like, Coverdale, is that you? And he runs away. <laughs> yeah. Finally runs back to Elliot's Rock or, or the pulpit where uh, they had the, <laughs> where Hollinsworth went off about, you know, yeah. kicking women's ass. The last stand for incels. Um, and that this chapter has a whole Maypole and Marymount feel a little bit. But um, do you notice the Maypole that was brought up? Where Zenobia uh, erected a Maypole. Oh, yeah? In, like, chapter six or so. Right, because she decides to delay it until the weather's or something a little bit nicer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, chapter 25, uh, the three together, basically is at uh, Elliot's pulpit, and uh, Hollinsworth um, reminds uh, Coverdale of a Puritan magistrate and chooses uh, Priscilla because she's got the money. Um, yeah, Zenobia's like, why? Did you know that about my money situation a and do you love priscilla and he's like i had some idea and uh i love priscilla um and then yes on both how about that he's described in ways that remind me of ahab a little bit we won't go into Mm. that too much but hollingsworth and ahab are sort of similar kind of guys uh one ahab's much i mean better book but uh from moby dick wow Really? You think so? Let <laughs> me go out on a limb there. Um, These are probably written at about right around the same time, I would imagine. Yeah, so chapter 26, Zenobia and Coverdale. Zenobia cries, tells Coverdale to write about her, says uh, he can make up her message to Hollinsworth, just make it something that fits in the poem well. Um, removes her flower, um, and then 
Chapter 27, Midnight. Coverdale's like, oh shit, she just drowned herself. And turns out that's what she did. Um, 28, uh, Zenobia is buried. And uh, Coverdale visits Hollinsworth and Priscilla um, sometime later. And he's like, hey, have you worked? How's your, uh, hey, hey, buddy. How's your uh, criminal justice reform going? And and, uh, Hollinsworth, as if he had it prepared, he's like, I'm dealing with. Uh, I haven't uh, converted one person. I'm dealing with one murder. Or I should just get that quote, shouldn't I? Yeah. <clears throat> it's the classic, like, uh, like stereotype of a liberal, basically. Right. Up to this moment, I inquired, how many criminals have you reformed? Not one, said Hollinsworth, with his eyes still fixed on the ground. Ever since we parted, I have been busy with a single murderer. <laughs> and he's talking about himself, who murdered Zenobia. Um... And then finally, the last chapter, Miles covered his confession where he's like, oh, by the way, I love Priscilla, which actually is, it's, it's a lame ass way to finish a book. Yep. It's kind of important though, because it shows that his uh, sort of incel energy or uh, impotence um, actually helped kill Zenobia as well. Because if he would have uh, went after Priscilla, then uh, Hollinsworth wouldn't have had a choice to make. Yep. Um, uh, but also, one final little uh, dig at foyerism at the end. More and more, I feel that we had struck upon what ought to be a truth. Posterity may dig it up and profit by it. The experiment, so far as its pr- original projectors were concerned, proved long ago a failure, first lasping into foyerism and dying as it well deserved for this infidelity to its own higher spirit. Where we once toiled with our whole hearts, the town paupers, aged, nerveless, and disconsolate, uh, creep sluggishly afield. Alas, what faith is requisite to bear up against such of generous efforts? Now, that's true. Foyerism did take over in about 1844, the uh, Ripley um, uh, Brook Farm. And uh, I have some more from, uh, from Chris Jennings on that. Nobody was keener to bring Brook Farm into the associationist fold than Albert Brisbane. His motivation, beyond the usual evangelical impulse, is obvious. The principal impediment to the triumph of Fourierism, at least as Brisbane saw it, was the fact that much of the American public, at least the portion that had heard of Fourier, perceived associationism as the frivolous, if not toxic, creation of a loop of French atheist. Conservatives and evangelicals routinely described the associationist movement as a clear and present danger to Christian civilization. Even liberal Bostonians were uneasy about the spread of Fourier's ideas. Writing in the Dial in 1844, Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, who had earlier rhapsodized about the pastoral life and the smell of clover, confessed a vague horror connected with Fourier's name. She admitted knowing very little of his actual writings but thought of Fourier's scheme as an enormous parasitic plant, sucking the life principles of society, while it spread apparently an equal shade, inviting men to repose under its beautiful but poison-dropping branches, a Catholicon of evil. This sort of impression which rhymes closely with 20th century fears about the evil tree of communism was precisely what Brisbane needed to overcome if the United States was going to become ground zero for the harmonic millennium. Brisbane knew that the support of the Brook farmers would lend celebrity and respectability to the movement. The famous, blue-blooded Yankees in West Roxbury could help dispel the popular view of Fourier's theory as an insidious schema of Gallic decadence. Of course, to a large portion of the population, the Brook farmers themselves seemed like shaggy-haired deists hung up on disturbing notions such as the equality of women and the sudden abolition of slavery. At first glance, 
Fourier's utopian program and Yankee transcendentalism make for odd bedfellows. Transcendentalism, especially as it has been fossilized in the prose of the Concord men Emerson and Thoreau, celebrates self-reliance, individual union with the spirit, personal freedom, and solitary contemplation of the eternal forms reflected in nature. Fourier, by contrast, sought global transformation through a voluptuary existence in bustling grand hotels. The transcendentalists eschewed material concerns for knowledge of things unseen, Fourier obsessed over costumes and dinner menus. Daily life at Brook Farm was defined by a poetic denial of all structure, the life within Fourier's imagined phalanxes was scheduled to the minute. But besides these differences in aspiration and style, the union between Fourierism and Brook Farm was a natural one. On the most basic level, the Brook Farmers already assumed the basic premise of all utopianism, namely, that the present organization of social relations the system needed a total overhaul. We were pretty well agreed, Hawthorne wrote, as to the inexpediency of lumbering along with the old system any further. More generally, the Brook Farmers, like Fourier and his apostles, aspired to a life of intense personal liberty and social cooperation. Fourier's theory seemed to offer them all the advantages of communalism with none of the enforced equality that they viewed as a threat to liberty. The notion that individual passions, freely expressed, can be harmonized to produce a collective good seemed to solve the riddle that Ripley had posed for himself and his community, how to liberate the many that are slaves to a few while avoiding the bondage of individuals to the power of the mass. For Ripley in particular and Americans in general, this was the special appeal of associationism. Unlike Shakerism and Owenism, or, later, Icarian, Fourier's vision, at least in its pure theoretical form, was a communitarian scheme grounded entirely upon the vital, spontaneous expressions of the individual. On paper it offered the best of both communism equality, fraternity, the dissolution of power relations, economies of scale and liberal individualism the freedom for everyone to rise to his or her own level, unhampered by the needs and sentiments of others. Ripley wrote that by identifying the interests of the many and the few the less gifted and the highly gifted associationism secures the sacred personality of all, gives to each individual the largest liberty of the children of God. Finding his own notions reflected back at him with a pleasing mathematical precision, Ripley slipped easily into Fourier's lyrical vocabulary of harmony, vibrations, and series. Life within association, Ripley wrote, would be in perfect union with the nature of man, to which every chord in his sensitive and finely vibrated frame will respond, which will call forth, as from a well-tuned instrument, all those exquisite modulations of feeling and intellect, which are aptly termed by Plato, the music of his being. In April 1844, Albert Brisbane convened a national meeting of associationists at Clinton Hall, on Astor Place in Manhattan. The purpose of the convention was to bring order and doctrinal coherence to the movement and to find some way of confederating the rapidly proliferating phalanxes. The conventioneers also took the opportunity to publicly and officially distance themselves from the more speculative aspects of Fourier's philosophy. New York journalists Park Godwin, Horace Greeley, and Brisbane led the proceedings, but two Massachusetts men sat on the rostrum, George Ripley and Charles Dana. They were there to celebrate Brook Farm's official reorganization as the Brook Farm Phalanx. Like the majority of 20th century communes, Brook Farm had begun as an essentially inward-facing institution. The Brook Farmers were united by a desire to forge a miniature commonwealth within, but insulated from, a corrupt society. By retrofitting the community as a phalanx, they turned their focus outward. Brook Farm, declared the community's new, Fourierist constitution, 
has hitherto worn, for the most part, the character of a private experiment, and has avoided rather than sought the notice of the public. The deep interest in the doctrine of association which now fills the minds of intelligent persons everywhere, indicates plainly that the time has passed when even initiative movements ought to be prosecuted in silence, we wish, therefore, to bring Brook Farm before the public. Charles Dana, probably the most ardent associationist in West Roxbury, had faith in the full speculative sweep of Fourier's vision. He believed that the conversion of Brook Farm would help trigger the physical and social regeneration of the earth. Our ulterior aim, he wrote, is nothing less than heaven on earth, the conversion of this globe, now exhaling pestilential vapors and possessed by unnatural climates, into the abode of beauty and health, and the restitution to humanity of the divine image, now so long lost and forgotten. A more mundane reason for Brook Farm's conversion can be found in the community's ledgers. By the time Brisbane came to West Roxbury preaching the new industrial world, the colony was nearly broke. A basic fact of rural economics dogged Brook Farm along with almost every small utopia of the era, the first few years of establishing a farm are by far the most expensive and labor-intensive. Purchasing land and tools, clearing stone, plowing up hard virgin land, planting orchards, building enclosures, and mills, these are all upfront costs. Only later, once the soil is loose and the trees have begun to bear fruit, can a farm yield any sort of profit asterisk 40 at Brook Farm, this situation was aggravated by a series of expensive construction projects required to house the rapid influx of members. With men like Hawthorne daydreaming at the plow, Brook Farm's fields may have been witty and sparkling, but they were never terribly fruitful. Even with expert cultivation, the farm would probably never have been a great success, and there was a reason the property had originally been a dairy, rather than a hay or vegetable operation. The soil was flinty and interspersed with large outcroppings of pudding stone conglomerate. Despite spreading the fields with plenty of swamp muck, they couldn't afford much manure, and building a greenhouse to extend their growing season, another pricey start-up cost, the Brook farmers were unable to raise a profitable harvest. Instead of selling vegetables, they went to Boston to buy them. Because of the poor soil and limited manure, the hay they grew for sale was of the lowest quality and fetched a low price. While the academy and a smattering of light industries brought in some income, the community was operating at a loss. By wedding their fortunes to the vibrant associationist movement and its wealthy benefactors, the Brook farmers hoped to secure a measure of solvency. The story of Brook Farm's conversion into a Fourierist phalanx is usually told as a decline from an age of gold to an age of iron ore, in the words of one early historian, a shift from poetry to prose. Miles mm -hmm. Coverdale, the narrator of Hawthorne's Blythdale romance, described the community's embrace of Fourier's ideas as a sort of original sin. After leaving the community, he reflected that the experiment, so far as its original projectors were concerned, proved, long ago, a failure, first lapsing into Fourierism, and dying, as it well deserved, for this infidelity to its own higher spirit. In 1844, the year of the switch, 67 people joined the community. As new members arrived, some of the old ones departed, lamenting as they went the end of their severance from the world and complaining about Fourier's rigid scheme. Emerson expressed the view of some when he wrote that Fourier had skipped no fact but one, namely life. The new members were, on the whole, less wealthy and less educated than the founders. Many were drawn from Northeastern Workingmen's Associations and Fourierist Clubs. Some had been participants in an 1843 social reform conference in Boston that was organized to simultaneously promote abolitionism and the truths of social science discovered by Charles Fourier. These new members lent the community a more politicized, working-class aspect. 
the historian Carl Guarneri describes the conversion of Brook Farm as a deliberate trade-off of charm for social relevance. The change in culture was most obvious among the women. Some of the early colonists were among the best-educated women in the United States peers and friends of Elizabeth Palmer Peabody and Margaret Fuller. They arrived in West Roxbury with a clearly defined sense of women's rights. By contrast, many of the new female members were the wives of tradesmen, with scant exposure to social science, let alone George Sand or Sappho. At Brook Farm, these women generally went to work in the kitchen or laundry. Some of them came to resent the women of the pre-Fourierist era, many of whom taught in the school and engaged confidently with the intellectual life of the community. John Codman, a 17-year-old who arrived with his family just after the conversion, thought of the pre-Fourierist incarnation of Brook Farm as little more than a holiday retreat for upper-class literati. <laughs> to Codman and his peers, the departing members looked like a pack of snobs extinct volcanoes of transcendental nonsense and humbuggery who could not countenance living with anyone who did not read Greek. <laughs> there were philosophers enough in it, he said of the early years. There were plenty of sweet, charming characters and amateur workmen in it, but the hard-fisted toilers and brave financiers were absent. Such a place might have been fun, but it would never transform the world. Mm -hmm. The community's convivial, intellectual atmosphere did not evaporate when it became a phalanx. People still gathered in Yeah, and uh, uh, so a few years later, they actually built a... A big phalanx, not to the proportions that uh, Foyer wanted built, and they were having a ball and listening to music. And all of a sudden, some guy comes in and said, "Hey, the phalanx that we just finished is on fire. We've had the stove in it for three days, God. and not insurance on it because we didn't have a stove in there." Yeah. And uh, that was the end. Well, one of the, the sort of beginning of the end for the Brook Farm phalanx. Um, yeah, I was just curious to get what. You thought of this, but having read now three of his four novels, right, that yeah. he wrote? The Marble Fawn is the... Uh, well, there's Fanshawe, his original early right. one, but I don't even know. I think you could probably get it online now, but it, nobody's really read that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like reading, like comparing this to Scarlet Letter and then House of Seven Gables, you can kind of... I felt I could or I could see this like thematic trilogy on like Hawthorne's like... Um, theory on how society operates and i thought it was very poignant that he he like makes the case that the transcendentalists are just the new puritans basically yeah that there's this subgroup that's like very into starting the world over again basically and something that like a like a psychic connection i never would have put together like in my head but it makes sense that for whatever reason he's like attracted to transcendentalists he's able to find the like the nut of that which is like i'm interested in them in the same way that i'm interested in puritans right so you see these kind of like radical like unique figures in um with like hester Prynne that are breaking this like very well-established order like that's scarlet letter and then when you get to like um house of the seven gables that society is on the verge of like collapse like it's almost right. dead mm -hmm. and then it's like a transition one and then like this period you have like the new man or whatever this like new rugged individual that's now creating like a sub-society of like individuals so it's almost just like the scarlet letter like all over again but in but everyone's a hester print yeah. in a way and i think that is how hawthorne sees like life or like these three novels are like an ex an exploration of his like personal philosophy that nothing actually changes that just the, just the pronouns change. And even trying to change is bad. Like that's a weird yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a bit of a review from possibly 
uh, British novelist George Eliot. Hmm. Do you remember George Eliot's real name? Um, Is it Marriott? No, no, I can't remember. I forget. Um, but uh, I think it gets to the nub of what my problem with this is. Um, and, and like I said, I, I actually... There, Hawthorne is a great writer. Like, I think even this book, which I, I'm not a huge fan of, there's still a lot of, like, talent in there, basically. Yeah, like, I, can't, I think we kind of talked about the beginning, but, like, his stylings and his, like, prose style is, I think, the strongest in this book. Mm. Like, oh, really? I, like reading like he was so into like ornamentation when we were reading his early work mm-hmm. and like really hammering home you know like the themes like you know a very like insecure writer I'm like we get it like it's the dark night of his soul i got it right you know whereas this like the themes are there and it's much more confident it's like it's lying beside the dialogue and the character and it's like moving along but the amount of like original ideas he's like running on empty in this yeah. whereas like scarlet letter is like exploding with like these like beautiful images of like you know like this woman bearing witness to her own sin or whatever in like the center of town like it's such an evocative image i can't think of one like evocative image basically in blydale romance Mm -hmm. right right so here is from uh the westminster review october 1852 the review has been attributed plausibly but inconclusively to british novelist george Eliot, and the review goes says this Blythedale then as a socialistic community is merely used here as a scaffolding a very huge one in the construction of an edifice considerably smaller than itself and then the artist leaves the scaffolding standing socialism in this romance is prominent enough to fill the book but it has so little business in it that it does not even grow into an organic part of the story and contributes nothing whatever toward the final catastrophe I would say only uh, it only contributes in the sense that Hollinsworth is so opposed to foyerism that he sort of goes insane. Uh, yeah, yeah. After that moment, he discusses it with uh, Coverdale. Um, it is a theater, and as such, it should have a neutral. It should have a neutral tint, but it should also be made of neutral stuff. And its erection, moreover, should not be contemporaneous with the performance of the play. But the incongruity becomes more apparent than we consider. Uh, when we consider the kind of play acted in it, take the moral of Zenobia's history and you will find that socialism is apparently made responsible for consequences which it utterly condemned and tried at least to remedy. We say, apparently, for it is really not made responsible for anything good, bad, or indifferent. It forms a circumference of circumstances, which it neither, which neither mold the characters nor influence the destinies of the individuals so equivocally situated forms in short not an essential part of the picture but an enormous fancy border not very suitable for the purpose which it was designed and also i think uh, henry james said something like uh they shouldn't feel like they were attacked in this they should feel slighted um that Mm. they weren't you know really covered um but i think generally it's the point i think uh hawthorne is making is we sort of touched on it earlier but we can put all these fancy theories onto things, but ultimately it's driven by human passions and mm. you're never going to be escaped that. And not for a moment does Coverdale escape that he's immediately like, like, Oh, Zenobia is pretty hot. Uh, I'm yeah. glad I only saw that much of her shoulder. Uh, I wonder <laughs> if he's a virgin. And also Priscilla, that's interesting. I'm very fascinated by how happy she is. I need to like, yeah. It's, and if you disagree with me, I will kill you. Yeah. And uh, gosh, it's this, uh, the stern man is very, was very nice to me. 
I feel like I'm kind of in love with them. Literally uses the word love to talk about Hollinsworth. Mm-hmm. Um, and at different parts, actually different parts, like uh, uh, Coverdale asks, like, uh, Zenobia, like, could you really have come amongst us for this? Or are you really, like, part of us? And she's like, well, it has its time and place, but I'm in the city now. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I, don't, I think it's actually a worthwhile critique of utopian communism, despite really avoiding it <laughs> almost entirely. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like a psychic or a spiritual uh, engagement with it. It's sort of like if somebody was engaging with like socialism by saying it's a secret, like uh, satanic plot. Yeah. Or just like an outfit, like a rejection, like just on the very notion that you'd even could suggest that it would work. He's like not taking it at its, he's not like picking apart the, the, the wins and losses of commune living. He's saying that commune living shouldn't even be under debate. It's un, it's unnatural or something like that. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, he, what he does is basically swap out socialism for mesmerism and then yeah. combine and then attacks mesmerism the entire time. Yeah, I mean, you noted that. I think that, that those are interchangeable terms. Yeah. Or a bit like any kind of communal living and mesmerism. It's just another form of magic. All right. So uh, we'll end with from the daddies. Communist Manifesto, um, where he actually takes a shot toward the end at the foyerists and other types of utopian communists. I was going to hope it was going to be Hawthorne. Like, people forget that he actually slammed Hawthorne in the Communist Manifesto. Yeah, no. <laughs> utopian socialism and communism. There's utopian socialism and communism. We do not here refer to that literature, which in every great modern revolution has always given voice to the demands of the proletariat, such as the writings of Babeuf and others. The first direct attempts of the proletariat to attain its own ends, made in times of universal excitement, when feudal society was being overthrown, these attempts necessarily failed, owing to the then undeveloped state of the proletariat, as well as to the absence of the economic conditions for its emancipation, conditions that had yet to be produced, and could be produced by the impending bourgeois epoch alone. The revolutionary literature that accompanied these first movements of the proletariat had necessarily a reactionary character. It inculcated universal asceticism and social leveling in its crudest form. The socialist and communist systems properly so called, those of St. Simon, Fourier, Owen, and others, spring into existence in the early undeveloped period described above, of the struggle between proletariat and bourgeoisie. The founders of these systems see, indeed, the class antagonisms, as well as the action of the decomposing elements, in the prevailing form of society. But the proletariat, as yet in its infancy, offers to them the spectacle of a class without any historical initiative or any independent political movement. Since the development of class antagonism keeps even pace with the development of industry, the economic situation, as they find it, does not as yet offer to them the material conditions for the emancipation of the proletariat. They therefore search after a new social science, after new social laws, that are to create these conditions. Historical action is to yield to their personal inventive action historically created conditions of emancipation to fantastic ones, and the gradual, spontaneous class organization of the proletariat 
to the organization of society specially contrived by these inventors. Future history resolves itself, in their eyes, into the propaganda and the practical carrying out of their social plans. In the formation of their plans they are conscious of caring chiefly for the interests of the working class, as being the most suffering class. Only from the point of view of being the most suffering class does the proletariat exist for them. The undeveloped state of the class struggle, as well as their own surroundings, causes socialists of this kind to consider themselves far superior to all class antagonisms. They want to improve the condition of every member of society, even that of the most favored. Hence, they habitually appeal to society at large, without distinction of class, nay, by preference, to the ruling class. For how can people, when once they understand their system, fail to see in it the best possible plan of the best possible state of society? Hence they reject all political, and especially all revolutionary, action. They wish to attain their ends by peaceful means, and endeavor, by small experiments, necessarily doomed to failure, and by the force of example, to pave the way for the new social gospel. Such fantastic pictures of future society, painted at a time when the proletariat is still in a very undeveloped state, and has but a fantastic conception of its own position, correspond with the first instinctive yearnings of that class for a general reconstruction of society. But these socialist and communist publications contain also a critical element. They attack every principle of existing society. Hence they are full of the most valuable materials for the enlightenment of the working class. The practical measures proposed in them, such as the abolition of the distinction between town and country, of the family, of the carrying on of industries for the account of private individuals, and of the wage system, the proclamation of social harmony, the conversion of the functions of the state into a mere superintendence of production, all these proposals point solely to the disappearance of class antagonisms which were at that time only just cropping up, and which, in these publications, are recognized in their earliest, indistinct, and undefined forms only. These proposals, therefore, are of a purely utopian character. The significance of critical utopian socialism and communism bears an inverse relation to historical development. In proportion as the modern class struggle develops and takes definite shape, this fantastic standing apart from the contest, these fantastic attacks on it, lose all practical value and all theoretical justification. Therefore, Although the originators of these systems were, in many respects, revolutionary, their disciples have, in every case, formed mere reactionary sects. They hold fast by the original views of their masters, in opposition to the progressive historical development of the proletariat. They therefore endeavor, and that consistently, to deaden the class struggle and to reconcile the class antagonisms. They still dream of experimental realization of their social utopias, of founding isolated phalansteres, of establishing home colonies, of setting up a little Icaria, duodecimo editions of the New Jerusalem, and to realize all these castles in the air, 
they are compelled to appeal to the feelings and purses of the bourgeois. By degrees they sink into the category of the reactionary conservative socialists depicted above, differing from these only by more systematic pedantry, and by their fanatical and superstitious belief in the miraculous effects of their social science. All right, and uh, thanks, Marks and Engels, for that. One final quick note, because I promised to talk about this on the Majority Report, is uh, the New York Tribune, which we talked about a bit in the uh, Edgar Allan Poe episode, mm -hmm. the Penny Press uh, run by Horace Greeley, uh, was a big promoter of Foyerism. Uh, uh, Albert Brisbane was a writer for them, and he studied with Foyer. He's one of the people that said, like, I never saw him smile. <laughs> um, and had a front page column where it's like, yeah, associationism is what we call it over here is good. And it was basically the communism, but it's sort of like a corporate thing. Cause you're buying into a joint stock company, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so the, the tribune got associated with this foyerism stuff and it was attacked. So here's a bit of, uh, Greeley talking about, um, let's see here. Um, yeah, Greeley wrote to Charles Dana about the toll that his support for associationism had taken on his personal life. Quote, I had encountered much opposition and ridicule on account of what I have published and the, and the little I have written for associationism and have shocked the prejudices of many worthy friends, some of whom have stopped my paper uh, on account of this and all been chilled in their friendship, in their friendship by my fanaticism. Now, the footnote there is kind of fun. Um, the paper that was in the Morning Courier and New York Inquirer was edited by a sharp young journalist named Henry Jarvis Raymond. Raymond, who had gotten his start under Greeley at the New Yorker and the Tribune, led the media charge against Greeley and Foyerism. In 1851, he founded his own paper, the New York Times. Yeah. So anti-communist from the start, and recently they reaffirmed that they are a capitalist paper. Yeah. Um, so, uh, believe people when they tell you who they are. Um, uh, I will just say if you're paying for the New York times, cancel that subscription, uh, and, uh, go to patreon.com slash literary hangover. We just passed 200. We're at like 210 now. Um, 200 subscribers on Patreon. You want to get to a phalanx number. Yeah. We want to get to 16, 1640 and then socialism yeah. happens. And wait for it to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, that should be my trick. next goal after 250. Just go right to 16. Right. Yeah. I, feel, I mean, why, why, why mess around with like 500? Yeah. Let's we can get right. the New York times tell you what to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, uh, check it out. Um, we're going to generally try to do, um, we're going to try to do two public episodes uh, a month, but this month we have the uh, Orwell and the, um, the Paradise er, um, and the Blydale Romance one. Um, if you wanted guaranteed two uh, episodes a month, you're going to need to be a Patreon supporter because, uh, I mean, you got three last week so, or last month, so <laughs> yeah, come on. Yeah, so go ahead. Yeah, go ahead and complain because I already got that bullet in the chamber. Um, but uh, upcoming, we're going to do Shooting an Elephant by George Orwell. That's only for Patreon subscribers. Uh, we also, me and Chris, are going to do Rutger Bregman's Utopia for Realists. Mm. Um, they'll go into our sort of uh, political contemporary uh, shelf. Um, I also want to do, um, we need to do the Crucible at some point. Yep. Close the page on uh, on the 17th century. Um, I also want to do, I'm, I'm very anxious, and I'm actually going to probably start reading tonight, um, The Pioneers by James Fenimore Cooper. Oh, um, get those leather stocking tails. Yeah, we need to get one of those out of the way at least. Um, and I've, 
Um, but uh, but anyway, uh, Alex, do you have anything else you want to add? Um, no, I mean, yeah, try to find a time in history where the New York Times is good. Yeah, that's a, that, that's been my big takeaway. Yeah, try this, to find a five series. a five year period. Yeah, <laughs> where they weren't doing anything absolutely atrocious. Yeah, and I'm not even talking being racist because I feel like that's just par for the course unless you're Horace Greeley. But like, I, like well, remember the like, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow review that we talked about. Oh, yeah. About. Yeah. 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 But like, try to find a five year period where they weren't uh, like foaming at the mouth for like Imperial War. Yeah. Bad, bad, bad news. Don't, don't pay for. Look, it's like, it's like a giant like public memo for the elite. Okay. Yeah. It's going to exist whether you pay your like whatever per month subscription fee. Okay. Steal it like everybody else. Find the workarounds. Like the, they're getting better at those. Delete, workarounds. I know it's annoying. Delete your cookies and stuff. Um, but uh, but if you're going to give your money to media, um, give it to Literary Hangover. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, Alex, this was a great one. Yep. Um, big long, big long boy today. Um, we will see you again uh, next time.